We'll come back after these messages. To be sharing, Fred. Happy holidays, pal. Oh, Fred. Fruity and Cocoa Pebble cereals, part of this nutritious breakfast. <laughs> the Disney Sunday Movie, brought to you by Great Tasting Post Fruity and Cocoa Pebble cereals. Happy holidays from your friends in Bedrock, and may all of your dreams be delicious. Hi all, this is Kermit the Frog, and I'm here to tell you the story about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Monday at 8, 7 Central, a special holiday treat for the whole family, when Jim Henson's marvelous Muppets bring Christmas to Frogtown Hollow in Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Tonight. It's looking a lot like Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Did you know, which I didn't know. I did not know that. That uh, Bob Hope uh, originated that song? Silver Bells? Yeah, he originated that song in a um, in an old movie of his called uh, The... The Nightmare Before Christmas. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, I did have the name for it, but I don't know where it is now. The uh, Lemon Drop Kid. Lemon Drop Kid. Yeah. Silver Bells. 1950, around that time. So isn't that crazy? It came out in 1951 because now that becomes part of the uh, Christmas canon. And it's like uh, you always you uh, hit me to uh, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. <laughs> I'm Dion Baez. And I'm Jay Blake. And this is the uh, the holiday edition. And this is the and we're jumping right special in. holiday edition. Yeah, we've 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 uh, we've had eggnog and we've we've uh, trimmed the tree. Blake helped me take it, take it over here. Uh, we just put the star up and we said let's start recording this. Um, Went through our. Eight days of Hanukkah. Yeah, it was really nice. We Kwanzaa, we had our stuff. We, had every, we tried to be all inclusive for everybody. Um, uh, Mel Torme. Oh yeah, yeah. You hit me to a the Christmas song. A Christmas song. You yeah, know, he wrote that. Yeah, that's what I mean. And then you know, you think it's like one of these hundred-year-old songs or whatever. And then the other one, uh, well, even like White Christmas was for was for that movie, right? Well, White what, Christmas is for Holiday they, Inn. Or did they? Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, Holiday well, Inn is... Well, a lot of that's the thing is a lot of those songs... Well, yeah, all those standards are from movies that you don't realize. Movies, yeah. And then, then you, you even a ton of Broadway the, plays. Even a lot of the Sinatra stuff, that's not Christmas related. Yeah, though, it's just know? him singing like songs that are even like from some sort of American songbook written by somebody. Or it was in a movie. <laughs> yeah, some, you know, Broadway show or some sort of film that does it... Um, but yeah, so it's 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 you know it's weird you think about that stuff. I never thought about because I was looking up Bob Hope, and I got to hand it to him. I mean, for fifty years or so, he was every Christmas he would go out and do like a USO show. Yeah, like in you know uh, Vietnam, Iraq, Korea. He's there. He's bringing like um, what's her name? Uh, uh, Whoever's the bombshell of the day. Yeah, the, the the chick. What's her name from I Dream of Jeannie? 
Oh, Barbara Eden. Barbara Eden. He's bringing her, and uh, I saw some. I I was this all originated because I was watching a, like the best of a Bob Hope Christmas special from like the early '90s. So he's got to be at least 90 in it. Yeah. And it, Macaulay Culkin is in it. Very <laughs> young. Uh, Joey Lawrence is in it. Whoa. You know? Yeah, because he's they're popular at the time. That's all he does. He just goes, Whoa, Bob Hope. Whoa, Bob Hope. Whoa, <laughs> whoa. So Barbara Eden's in it. And uh, they cut to like a... Uh, like, remember, Bob, when yeah, we went to... It's exactly like that. Reba McIntyre, that's all that. And they just cuts to... The so they cut to Barbara Eden like in the 80s or 70s. And she's looking gorgeous. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I'm like, you know, and I've met her once too, about 10 years, so years ago, and she still looked, you know, looked gorgeous. She's one of these women who just, you know, has that, keeps... Got keep good jeans. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. Like, Bob Hope's been doing that since like World War II. Every, you know, every year he was like at a... Uh, you know, uh, uh, with the boy, the troops, the boys, you know, entertaining them. That's yeah. a real. And every you know, time I go to California, I fly into the Bob Hope International Airport. That's amazing, and that's in where Burbank. Is that? That's in Burbank. I've never flown it. I've only flown into. I went to LAX with you that time. Yeah, yeah. I try to avoid LAX. Yeah, it's a little um, too hectic. Burbank's yeah. a breeze. It's, well, it's almost like a JFK, right? It's like its own little thing. Uh, LAX. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, it's, it's like pretty its massive. own little entity and all that kind of thing. But anyway. Uh, but then last week we did Die Hard. You were dying hard with we, vengeance. We were dying. <laughs> we were dying hard with a vengeance, <laughs> and we never even brought up the point about the bearer bonds. Where they were, there was a there was a theory about why the hell would Nakatomi need to have bearer bonds on site, and there was speculation that what what kind of dodgy stuff are they doing that they need to have those kind of assets in house in a building? Because with bearer bonds, as in Die Hard, is whoever holds the bearer bonds, a banker wherever has to cash them, has to honor it, depending who you know who cares who it is they have to so it's like why would Nakatomi even need that that kind of cash unless they were doing dodgy things so and did you come up with any uh I didn't I was thinking like uh <laughs> Takagi was maybe doing some dodgy dealings maybe maybe there's some sort of Takagi, connection Takagi maybe what maybe Hans knew that the whole time <laughs> Takagi <laughs> so but uh yeah that was Die Hard last week and then this this week we're doing we're going way down the alley to to uh to uh uh Special that's starting to get some recognition now. Getting some uh, juice, yeah, getting some juice <laughs> now. It's it just turned turned forty one this year because it came out in nineteen seventy seven uh, and it had the first American premiere in seventy eight. So if we go by that standard, it's forty in America. Um, the, well, in the United States, I mean, yeah, technically Canada is, is part of North America, exactly, yeah, <laughs> the American continent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So within the United States of America, <laughs> the all fifty states, it, it, it premiered in 1978. Uh, uh, but we're doing uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, an old Christmas special from uh, way back when that went away for a little while, and then came back, and then it was cut up for various reasons, and it was it yeah had all these kind of edits, and then finally this, now this, it's getting a this <laughs> this Christmas special. Is, has yeah. more cuts than Blade Runner, <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> I think that's literally true. Yeah, it's 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 saying something, and uh, we can get into why all that is. But it's uh, it's a it's a special thing because it's this nugget in time where they they did it for HBO, and it came on HBO. Well, they did it for for some, some Canadian. Yeah, um, what's it called? Like uh, CBC Television, and then next year HBO picked it up and. and ran on HBO and that they shot it in Toronto and it's also you know where they end up shooting Fraggle Rock mm -hmm. in Toronto and that is all I remember when I was little I didn't have HBO so you know they're like well screw you you can't watch Fraggle Rock <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. so I always hated missing that and I almost didn't want to watch and I didn't want to like Fraggle Rock because I was like you know screw it you know this is this pisses me off so I wonder if it, there was a 
there's a story there where it's like they, you know, they went and did this up in Toronto. They liked doing M and Otter so much. You're like, oh, let's try to develop something else. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I don't even think, like, for the most part, like American television, I don't think started using Vancouver and Canada all that much until the mid to late '80s. Yeah, exactly. So they were way ahead of the curve. Maybe because the facility, it had something for them that they could... Um, Maybe it's because that original show was for Canadian television. The CBC. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then they just liked it up there, maybe, and they just decided, yeah. and maybe it was cheaper, or they had access to bigger facilities. Yeah. Because when you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff... Of, of this. Of this, and you see like what they They created built. a whole town. <laughs> it, it's gorgeous, but it is like a marvel it's of, huge. of that, movie making. Yeah, it's, 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 it's something I have a huge affinity for, all this, and it's just... I mean, I know I, I should have done more research into the Jim Henson aspect of that story, but I feel like with the success of Sesame Street, and they did the Muppet Show, and then they were looking to do something that would take it to the next level that would be all-inclusive for countries, and that's why you get Sesame Streets. There's regional Sesame Streets with, within the country. Mm-hmm. So I know Fraggle Rock had different presenters. Like, there was an English guy who lived at a lighthouse for that, Fraggle Rock. We had our guy who had Sprocket. Well, they yeah, all had yeah. Sprocket, but you had different... So And then I was like, oh, why would they do that? And then you realize, oh, that's actually smarter because then everybody... It helps the kids... Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, feel like it's you know, you're not watching an American product. Well, like, we've told this story, but when we gave, we had a friend in college named Alex who was uh, Mexican. Yes, he was from. He was born and raised in Mexico City, and uh, we were at Coconuts. Yeah, which is defunct, <laughs> which does no longer exist. But we found oh, and coconuts for people who don't know what that was. It was an old DVD like a, music CD store. Yeah, yeah. Video, I guess a music. It was music like a music video. store, but you could yeah. buy movies there. Yeah, and we found a VHS of Looney Tunes cartoons in in Spanish. Yeah, and for in like the dollar or five dollar bin. <laughs> so we're like, hey, we're gonna buy this for Alex. <laughs> and we, we gave it, and we gave it to Alex, and Alex was like genuinely touched because he put it on. We were watching it, and he was like, this is. The bugs. This is the voice of Bugs Bunny that I grew up with. Yeah, he te- he almost teared up. I my like that was his, that's what he didn't have Mel Blanc. That's what Bugs Bunny sounded like. Yeah, as a kid. So in my my recollection, he cried and we hu- we hugged him. We gave him, <laughs> the, you know. But it, that's and it's weird to think about. Which maybe this is the conversation we had last time. Is uh, is that really then maybe how you know you have to think about it in the greater context of the world. That p- some people aren't seeing it the way you're seeing it because they're, you know, I guess that's a very smart. Well, I mean, in the context of Evan Otter, it's a smart marketing tactic, but it, it's a necessity in other things where you have to just dub it or something like that. Yeah. You know? Well, I was, I remember back when Split came out, that M. Night Shyamalan movie. And yeah. uh, I was talking to someone on Twitter who was French, who was from, who lived in France. And they were going to go see it, and I was like, "Oh, I was like, I really wonder how that performance. Uh, what's the name of that guy in that movie? It's the uh, English kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. The guy who plays Professor X now. Yeah, because uh, he's great in that movie. Oh, he's phenomenal. But with all the different personalities and stuff, I was like, I really wonder how that's. I was like, is it going to be subtitled or dubbed? And they said dubbed. I was like, oh, I'm really curious to see like what you think. <laughs> like, is that performance gonna? Uh, James uh, McRoy? McAvoy. 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 Yeah. Uh, we're curious to see what his what that performance is going to feel like to you. I wonder if you get abs- if will they get absorbed into it? You know, I mean, will they still fall because his performance is so good? You won't. Maybe they're used to just yeah. You know, all I would their lives. And the guy's gonna whoever's doing it is gonna have to try yeah, to do the various get in. characters. Of but. course. 
I mean, even I guess you could translate that to any movie. You think about like movies like. I mean, not so much like a psycho, but like Raising Kane or, I mean, well, that's the actor doing it, but like movies where you have that kind of an eccentric schizophrenic yeah. performance. Well, I think, you know, I think it's, I mean, I think you're a little more, uh, you recognize a little bit more because your wife is, you know, not from here. Me. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, like, we are sheltered. Like, we are kind of in a bubble here. I mean, don't, I don't think most of us think about, at least very often, that all this stuff that we produce here in America is going out across the, the world and has to be presented <laughs> in different ways. I mean, we talk and about now that's getting to be very. I mean, in the day it was always like in this, like that was taken for granted, but now they're we're making an active, yeah, you know, we're actively making content so that it'll be more uh, assimilated into other cultures and countries. yeah. I mean, we talk about it from like the Italian end when we do the Giallo movies and stuff yeah. and how. Italy's biggest film markets were not Italy, so that's why they filmed them the way they did without sound and dubbed it all, and they would try to get actors from America, someone who's recognizable from various countries, so that they could market their movies all over the world. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, in a way, Henson, for American business, uh, entertainment business, maybe he was just kind of ahead of his time. I mean, who also, he seemed like for all intents and purposes, like a really good dude. Yeah. Cared. Yeah. About children. And, it's, and the people around him and all that. And the people around him, but like, you know, was trying to do something positive, was trying to leave a positive yeah. footprint. Uh, and he was a trendsetter. And because, yeah. recognized that, you know, there are kids all over the world that need Ebon Otter yeah. and Kermit the Frog. Yeah, and the Muppets. Because <laughs> they went and filmed the Muppet show. They filmed that in London. They started Sesame Street here in the States, and then um, I worked with a guy who uh, started out on the original Sesame Street here. He used to tell me, like, he would be, like, uh, looking at, like, horse races at the Belmont with Mr. Hooper sitting on the things. <laughs> and he was an old, his, at the day, his thing was he was an audio guy, so he was the day where you had, like, a boom on, like, a crane, and you're moving the boom around. He was doing all that kind of stuff and saying yeah, how different yeah. it is. And he said, you know, some of the guys here in... in in New York were kind of pissed that when they brought the Muppet movie Muppet show over there but I remember that story was he had marketed to a bunch of people and nobody was interested yeah. you want to do like a, like a puppet variety show like the old days so I think they found uh, I forget he was a real legendary producer uh, in England this guy who said sure you know you, I, I see what you're doing with Sesame Street and what you did with the Ed yeah, Sullivan yeah. show I'll take a chance and they went to the studio so I guess it got easy for him if it was such a success the Muppet show in England first then America was taking it. He's like, well, why don't I go up to Canada and you know try to shoot something different up there? Little known uh, piece of Sesame Street trivia. Yeah, uh, Holly Robinson Pete, who was in Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, <laughs> I believe her dad was in like the first season or two of Sesame Street. Well, who's her dad? I don't know his name. Something Robinson, I'm sure. Is he the ball? Is he's not the ball headed guy? Is no, he? he's not Gordon. No, he's not Gordon. I don't think he was. I don't think. I really think he's only in like the first season or two. I don't think he was one of like the long lasting Maria oh. or Gordon. <laughs> well, those are the, the other the white guy. I forget his name. Uh, I I now have made it a staple every year. I watch the Christmas. Uh, there's a great Christmas special, which I kind of found late in life, like maybe only ten or fifteen years yeah, ago. Yeah, we've talked about doing it here. Um, well, no, I'm talking about Sesame Street. Oh, Sesame yeah, Street. There's, there's a great not the Henson. No, one. not the Henson. No, there's another. No, there's a Sesame Street Christmas special where it's like it starts with them on the ice ice rink and like I believe in miracles, and then they go home and the sh the shtick is Oscar tells 
you know, uh, Big Bird, that there's no Santa because how is he going to get down chimneys if you live in the city? There's no, you know, whatever. So yeah. Big Bird, you know, goes away and they like, oh, and he's waiting upstairs for Santa, you know. It's like, where did he go? It's a snowstorm, you know. Uh, but you and I, I'm always talking about there's this legendary, like probably my favorite movie of all time. And it's from 1987 and it's from this. Just before he died, right? Yeah, and it's it's like one of the, probably the last things he did with with all them, all the Muppet people. And it's a, it was a TV show special from like maybe CBS. Yeah. And it only aired twice maybe like 87 88 and then uh because uh within it there's they had copyright issues with the songs they had jingle bell rock they did like um uh maybe rock around the christmas they do a couple uh you know well-known songs so that when it came back to go to the syndication they had to cut the crap out of it to get those out yeah and that's the one we've talked about because dion loves it so much and i enjoy it too but uh, it's it's where I am in my mind. That's when I go to when I die my, and go to heaven. I'm, I'm going always, to that, that that farmhouse. Not that I put up a fight, but I'm always like maybe we should do something. You know, like I'm at Otter because I feel like more people have seen it. Like, yeah, because that one's a, it's more of like like a special. Ni- it's pretty it's niche. niche. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's something people may know. But I feel like, and I don't know why the Henson Company wouldn't be trying to. You know, re-release that in some sort of special edition somehow because it's. I mean, you well, have now it's Disney, right? Yeah, and yeah, it's. It, I mean, in it you have the Muppets. Uh, they go should up to do the farm that. House. They should release that. They should release the Star Wars Holiday Special. Yeah, in a like two-pack box. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, then Sesame Street meets them up there. Fraggle Rock meets them up up there, and then you have a big like full umbrella Jim Henson Muppet Christmas with all the different franchises at the end singing. You know, old friends, new friends. Start a letter writing campaign. Yeah, me and you are already going. We're going to start. A, we're going every <laughs> every episode. We're going to write a letter and send it out. Um, I mean, it, I'm just. They, I don't know why. I mean, it's they're sitting on gold there. They could put that on TV, you know. But you're right. So Disney, Disney owns now owns everything, right? But originally Ev- everything, everything. everything. <laughs> Uh, and that's Literal, an understatement. Almost literally. Literally. They own me, on uh, my mind. Uh, but back in the day, I guess Henson had initially made a deal with Disney for the Muppets cast, which included Kermit the Frog, everybody. Because I remember in the early 90s when I went to MGM Studios, which is called like Hollywood Studios now, Yeah, they had a Muppets ride. It was like the 3D ride where you get squirted with water and all that. I was like, yeah. oh, this is great. The Muppets are here. So uh, the point that for this story is... Uh, since Jim Henson's company still retained the rights to Emmett Otter, they no longer had the rights to Kermit the Frog. Or they did, but they would have to get licensed because Disney owned it with the, Muppet, the bigger Muppet cast. So in this special, Emmett Otter, originally Jim uh, or Kermit did the intros and outros to the special. He yeah. introduced the kids to what was going on and but all that. But he also that. does voiceover. Yeah, he, he tells... Originally, yeah, throughout. He, he was telling what was going on and all that kind of a thing. And then uh, when they ended up re-releasing this in the early 90s to go on uh, Nickelodeon. That's how I first saw it in the early 90s because Nickelodeon was um, syndicating a lot of the Muppet stuff. The yeah. old Muppet show. Not the Muppet shows from the 70s. Well, maybe they did, but there was a show that I liked called, I think, the Jim Henson Hour in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were syndicating a lot of that on like Saturday mornings or afternoons and the weekends. And that's how I first saw Emmett Otter, but it was devoid of Kermit because they had to cut Kermit out because, you know, I think, you know, it's Viacom, I think, Nickelodeon. Viacom. Viacom. So for years you hear, oh, Kermit the Frog was, you know, originally, and I never understood what the hell does that mean. So Kermit came over and was hanging out, <laughs> you know, and then. What are you talking about? Yeah, what you talking about, Kermit the Frog? 
So then, then, and then it comes out on video. So that, but then in the early '80s, it came out on video at a big '80s clamshell HBO, this HBO special, and that's how for years people who had originally seen it aired on HBO were able to get that original cut with Kermit the Frog. Was if you'd gotten the early '80s, uh, you know, VHS edition. Yeah. So by the time our or, or me seeing it in the early '90s, you know, I didn't know that Kermit was cut out. You know, and then it was until, and then I remember working at the video store. It got re-released on video and DVD, but it didn't have that. It had maybe just the outtakes and stuff. And then there's been several editions up until maybe two years ago. They released one that had Kermit cut back in, and maybe something else. But that might not, like you just alluded to, that might not actually be the original mothership. Uh, no, there's versions now. Where you're saying there's a version like. There is a version around that might be on Amazon, like streaming. Yeah, that has Kermit at the front and back, but doesn't have the voiceovers. Yeah, throughout. Um, throughout. Because what is ha- what has started happening then? ABC Family, which is owned by Disney, was airing like the what is it? The Twenty Five Days or Christmas? They have something, and they aired Emmett Otter on there, and they made it aired another Chris like a Muppets Christmas special, and they aired it with Kermit. Yeah. But I I don't know if I'm aware of. The edition we watched, I don't think, has the Kermit voiceover throughout. No. It only has him bookending. I don't think so. I think Do, it's just you know, the bookends. And and then it was I had seen, which is the one which is similar to the one on Amazon. I think. Yeah, and and then the other, like more uh, available one prior to that was the just minus Kermit. Which I mean, you don't really need Kermit in here because it is kind of self-contained. But I guess Kermit sets up what's going on yeah. for people who don't know the original Emmett Otter property, which was a, a storybook uh, that was back, I think, from 1971 is when it came out. It's a great little, um, you know, story tale that I guess uh, Henson originally picked up and uh, was like, this would be something great to adapt. And uh, we brought it with us tonight. We read the source material for this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I brought the old Emmett Otter Drug Band Christmas book with us. Dion's dad sat down and read it to us. <laughs> yeah, he was like, all right, you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you sons of bitches. Are you guys done with the tree? You little assholes. You little duh. assholes. You filthy animals. <laughs> all right. Blake, take your shoes off. And then, with him, he made us vacuum because we had pine needles everywhere. And then he read... <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's a great, and we'll talk, we can go and talk about the similarities of the, you just picturing that, Blake? <laughs> sitting in my mind that, and it was weird because we had to sit in the, we had to sit on the couch next to him on either side so we could look at the, because it's, it's a picture, it's a uh, picture, uh, yeah, the picture book. It's, it's a, a picture book. Gorgeous, uh, illustrations. Picture pages. Picture, picture pages. It's time to get your picture. So it's a story by this, uh, person by Russell Hoban. I would, say, I would say Hoban. And then pictures by Lillian Hoban, too. So I guess that's husband and wife. Or brother and sister. But or I would, brother and I sister. I would guess husband and wife. If, and I had, if I had to guess. Yeah, it would be a husband and wife team. And it, it says creators of the Francis the Badger series. So maybe there is a bigger series of this world. But uh, as we can go into, if you when we look at the illustrations for the book, uh, Henson's special is very loyal. To, to the particular characters, even to the point of the songs that are kind of incorporated in, as well as uh, just the look of everything, which is kind of fascinating. You, your history with this is you didn't see it. I'd never even heard of this. Thing. Yeah, and you're <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Years ago, until we were in college, and I watched it with you and a couple of other people. Yeah. at your apartment. Yeah, because I remember the person at the time we were talking about stuff, and she remembered it, and she had it. So I was like, well, go. Get your ass up, walk across to your apartment, bring it back, and we and we might have all watched it then. Yeah, I never even heard of it. And that was probably the cut devoid of uh, Kermit. You know, it was just the in probably. and out. You know, and, and it's hard to wrap around. It's like, oh, you this know. is probably this was before 
I mean, I think at that point DVDs had existed, but nobody had a DVD no, player. No, this yet. is probably like ninety nine or two thousand. Only the rich, only the rich only kids, the, <laughs> the, the rich boys had it. Yeah, and that, that was probably. Else. Let me think. That was probably. I'd say what, like ninety nine, two thousand. That was probably early two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand, because we graduated two thousand one. Yeah. So that was the only time you'd seen it. Well, no, that might have been ninety nine. Yeah. I think that might have been ninety nine. That was when I think it was the, your first with semester when you were living with Mike Brown. Yeah, in that in that uh, small apartment, yeah, the studio apartment. Mike so Brown. it was probably ninety nine. Yeah, we bring him up sometimes. He's a jazz musician who now is touring with uh, what's his face, Jason. He's Jason Mraz's drummer. Jason Mraz. Is, speaking of Jason Mraz, getting into this, it's funny because I'm listening on a side note. I'm listening to all my Christmas carols. I got like the radio station on that's playing, you know, twenty four hours of Christmas songs until December twenty fifth. And I'm hearing a lot of, there's a big push for Michael Blubley. It's yeah, like they yeah. woke Michael Blubley up. <laughs> like dusted Christmas him off. Yeah, they dusted him off, woke him up, plugged him in, he charged. They got a charge out. And now he's like singing all the standards. Because Blake and I, Blake introduced me to Blubley. And then we saw, I saw him once with you at the Blue Note. And then I saw, I took my dad and saw him up in Connecticut at the yeah. Mohegan Sun. Yeah, I mean, we saw him before. Or maybe Fox was. Like just before he became a big deal. Yeah, he was still kind of a young guy doing like the, he was singing the arrangements of Sinatra and like the, those kind of guys, the Dean Martin, yeah. you know. And he's Canadian. And it's funny because then when we saw him, he was kind of like hot shit. He was a yeah. young band. He's like, you know, he's like, women love him. And he was just realizing that. So he was really being provocative to the audience and ladies. And the band members looked younger than us. And we're yeah. like, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> and now he's adult contemporary. Yeah, now he's turned into an adult contemporary. But it's so it's funny when you hear him like singing like, you know, uh, all these little Christmas songs. You're like, wait, is that Sinatra? Oh, no, that's Michael Bublé. <laughs> what the hell? You know. So I, that got me thinking about all that. But anyway, uh, getting back to what we were so talking I'd about. So I never seen, I never heard yeah. of this. I also was like, I was not keen on it. It just didn't, it's like, yeah, hey, it was okay. Well, no, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was that thrilled with it. So I don't think I disliked it. I just, I, I, but in general, I was not as big of a, <clears throat> I was not as big of a Muppets kid or a, a Disney kid yeah. as you were. Yeah. It's very funny, like. You know, you're. I was. You, you, know. you could trace because Blake takes the DNA test and traces <laughs> the linear line of both of us. <laughs> I always say, like, you know, Dion's like Dion's main interest. Obviously, we both have various interests, but like the real, if you're going to distill Dion's, you know, media intake in terms of movie watching and stuff, it is like kid stuff. Like Disney and the Muppets. Yeah. And then it just takes a giant leap into like 70s crime movies and westerns. Yeah. So it goes from being very kid. And older too. I mean like very, 40s and 50s. Yeah, yeah. but if we're just really, if we're going to really just like really stereotype it. Yeah. Uh, but even the 40s and 50s stuff is like gangster movies and stuff. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very, it goes from very child programming to more mature masculine programming. In horror, I liked old horror too. But there's a big leap there. Me, it's like the opposite. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yes, Dion is as into G.I. Joe and Transformers and stuff as I am. But, you know, like that's the stuff I, that's like the only stuff from my childhood that I have nostalgia for. The G- it's the, like G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. And- so it's like very masculine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, child memories. And then the stuff that I like, you know, as an adult. Or like romantic comedies and stuff about yeah. teenage coming life, coming of age stories of teenage, teenage girls. Yeah, so it was like we kind of flip flop. 
<laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, I was like, you know, I watched Sesame Street sometimes. I was never, I mean, I didn't have cable, so you watch whatever was on. So it was on PBS. Yeah, yeah. You'd That's watch the it. only reason why I watched, like, Mr. Mr. Rogers. Rogers. Yeah, I don't think I ever liked Mr. Rogers. That was what was on. So yeah, I watched, watched it. it in order. Yeah. And you just, I would, sit contact, there, I would just sit there and wait for the land of make believe. It's like, all right. You know, one of these days, Mr. Rogers is going to get in there. Let's move it along. Come on, Mr. McFeely. Let's get to the land of make-believe. Yeah, correct as usual, King Friday. So I was just never, I was just, you know, my parents would take me to the Muppets movies. You know, I don't think I saw the first one in the movie theater, but I think I saw the Muppets take Manhattan. Did you watch the Muppet Babies as a kid? Muppet Babies I watched. I think it was on like weekend. Saturday morning. Yeah, Saturday morning. I remember we went to go see, there's some Sesame Street movie where Big Bird... Yeah, fuck, go home or something. Has to get the it's a road ducky. movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a road I remember, to, <laughs> road to <laughs> Sesame Street. I think we went to go see that. Yeah, that was big in like '85 or '86, whatever that was. Was it because it wasn't there were like a lot of famous people in it, like Danny DeVito? Yeah, I mean, I think it was Rubber following the, the the template of the Muppet movie. Kinda, yeah, but with Big Bird trying to find his way somewhere. Yeah, or back to Sesame Street or something. Yeah. I think that was the last time I saw a movie was in the movie theater. Yeah, I did, probably with me too, because mm-hmm. I, I I start finding there's other things that they've done that I'm like, oh, they did this. I didn't realize it was special. So I just never would have. It's not. This is not something that I would have sought out. Yeah, like I wouldn't have looked for. A, and as we've established on previous Christmas specials, I was like never a Christmas special yeah. kind of. Kid. And since you didn't have cable, you didn't have HBO. So you <laughs> yes. weren't watching Fraggle Rock. You weren't watching this. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, if I was at my dad's house, I would catch Fraggle Rock. Yeah, see, um, I didn't even get that. But uh, we had the glasses from the Muppet movie from McDonald's or Burger King or wherever. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we had that stuff. But, uh, yeah. I, you know, it was, it's funny because there was, maybe my, my brother must have been really into it. Because we had a Sesame Street playset that was fucking awesome. Yeah. And I, I must have brought it up on previous episodes because it would close and yeah. then you could carry it and then you would it's open like the street, it up. Right? It's yeah, like, yeah, and then so you so open yeah. it up and then it's the like the, 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 the front. stone and the, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in the back. When they used to make quality like, toys. And then it's like, uh, you know, you have like Bert and Ernie's apartment and stuff. And let's just say the Joes uh, lived on Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they go in battle and have a big street fight and <laughs> kill they, everybody on Sesame when Street. When they went home. They were After hanging. the battle, they were they had nice accommodations on Sesame Street. <laughs> Have they did the one more? Well, now you know, no one's after the battle. G.I. Joe, back to Sesame Street. Uh, hanging on Mr. Hooper. But yeah, so like I never saw this. So some of this stuff is tough. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the, the thing with some of the, ch- the children's stuff, and it was this way with some of the other things we did, like Hocus Pocus, was it's tough. Like if you don't, if you didn't grow up with it. Yeah, there's no frame of reference. Yeah, there's no like warm spot in your heart for it. There's yeah. no nostalgia. Yeah, for it. With that said, I, I you know, I, I don't dislike this, but because I didn't grow up with it and it was never a thing for me, I'm not as into it as I'm sure many people our age are. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a good time. I had a good time watching it with you. I uh. I mean, me, I think the first record my parents gave me, this is probably where it shapes it, is like I got the Muppet Movie soundtrack. And then I was watching the Muppet Movie, and then from there, that might have even gave me the idea where I wanted to, like, write and act and, direct, you know, make movies and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Um, like, as Kermit the Frog does in, in the Muppet Movie. And I always had that. And then, 
I mean, I like the Muppet Show just fine. I remember watching that on rerun. They play. I feel like it was on like on Saturday nights. The yeah, Muppet, the Muppet I can't recall it on you occasion, know? but I don't feel like I ever caught it on a regular basis. Because I remember I seeing like I remember seeing the Star Wars episode. I remember seeing like you know Rocky on. You know, like you remember these Bill Bob Hope. Like you remember because they're doing the variety show with the famous person. Yeah, uh, I remember all that stuff. And then I had like these crazy big. Like, uh, I had the Kermit the Frog that was, like, the investigative reporter from Sesame Street. I had him in his trench coat. Maybe, maybe it wasn't that. It was more of the trench coat. There's a scene, like, in the Muppet movie where there's where Piggy's singing, and then you see, like, it's like he's dressed up like as like Casablanca, and he's standing under a streetlight, and she comes up to him. Maybe he's in that kind of a trench coat with a hat. I had him, and then I had, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, oh, my mind is going, uh, Skeeter. Or not Skeeter, Scooter. Yeah, I had scoot- yeah, and then I remember they had like heavy. Their sh- sneakers were hard, like you can like whack something. You know, it was like that hard <laughs> plastic. Somebody else, yeah. So I had them. So like I would, and then I had a, a my regular uh, teddy bear that I would then make it pretend to be Fozzie. So I would do my own Muppet Show kind of yeah. variety on my bed. I'm like, oh, you know, it's the Muppet Show. And then on a completely separate, as I'm getting older. I remember going to the first couple of video stores around that I was able to go my own, or my parents would say, hey, you want to pick something out, and discovering Bugsy Malone. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Jesus, Bugsy Malone for me was like, it was like <laughs> kids gangsters shooting pie, Thompson pie guns at each other. It's a whole kids cast musical with uh, Scott Baio and uh, Jodie Foster, written book written by Paul Williams. And that's when I think I discovered Paul Williams. And then I realized, oh, he's the same guy who wrote all the Muppet movie stuff. Yeah. So it's like, I love this style of music. I love the songs and this kind of thing. So then by the time, you know, and then I'm catching the Muppet. I'm, I never was a huge uh, repeat watcher of the Muppet caper. Yeah. And then I've, I saw the Muppets take Manhattan in the theater. Uh, and then, you know, in the late 80s, they had different shows on. Then Jim Henson passes away, which is really sad at the time. And then you have like post- Henson, you have the, the Christmas Carol, and I've never loved the stuff. I think the only post-Henson one I ever saw was the space one. The Muppets in Space. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, they're all good in their own right. Like, I think the, the Christmas Carol of Michael Caine is great. Um, they have Muppets Treasure Island, which is really good. I watched that until Delirium because I was working at a toy store at the time, so I would just pop it in and watch. That has Tim Curry. Yeah. Then there's the Muppets in it's Space. It's weird because you know, going through the whole thing where I'm saying I don't, you know, I didn't, I was never really cared about the Muppets. I did always like Kermit. Yeah. And when I watched Sesame Street, the only thing about Sesame Street I liked was when he was the reporter. Yeah. When Kermit in. would show. Well, up. but it's interesting they and would so, do that. They'd make that connection for kids. And so I would never got into them because. Th- what, Kermit or the They're Muppets? Not, I never got into the post Jim Henson movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they just weren't Kermit. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it's weird, too. It that was the thing sound, with me. It just wasn't Kermit. Yeah. And I just don't want to. I just don't. You know. Unfortunately, I, Kermit passed away when Jim Henson yeah, passed away. And, and it just doesn't. It's not the same. And then even now, the reboot of the movies the past couple of years, I haven't really been too over the moon about. Uh, I haven't seen them. Uh, I, I mean, saw, I watched the show. When yeah. They rebooted the show. I didn't see I, that. I thought that was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the two movies are all right, in my opinion, but I don't know. They're just doing things that I'm just like, eh, you know. I, I wanted to, them to take it back to the kind of roots of the era. But that said, there was parts in the post-Henson years I liked. And then, I, of course, I loved all the other things that, you know, the Henson company was contributing to, like the Ninja Turtles and all sure, that kind yeah. of stuff. And But I another on that said, prior to him passing away, I never went really after the non-Muppet-centric stuff. 
So I had only seen Labyrinth once. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a girlfriend showed it to me at uh, at a certain age. I had never saw Dark Crystal till maybe later in life. That was just scary as all hell. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like all the stuff, it was really hard for me to come to. I saw them up at Christmas special that we talked about before from Lady Seven on air the night it aired. I taped it. And I loved that, and that was like my penultimate or or the the ultimate Muppet uh, product for me. So I'd never seen Emmett Otter, but I feel like if I saw Emmett Otter back in the day, I would have liked it just as much because to me it's more accessible yeah. to a Muppet fan than those real more abstract like the yeah, well it's more Muppety. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but it's also it's not like. You know, Dark Crystal, you're in a weird world, and there's evil things, and they're scary-looking, or Labyrinth, it's like there's this sense of doom, where Emin Otter's like, you know, again, it's me, like, living in my Frank Capra head, where it's like, I would love to live in, uh, you know, in, in Frog Town Hollow, or, you know, or Waterville, like, this is all, yeah. I love that, you know, it's kind of, like, very idyllic to me, and, you know, so, it's warm, so there's not too much... There's not too much at stake in Emin Otter. Like, you know, no one's going to die. Or, you know what I mean? I mean, there, I, mean they, I guess there could, but it's like, so it's interesting. So when I, when I came around to this, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And then in recent years, I've been noticing there's been this buzz with it where uh, they just released this year, finally, the Paul Williams soundtrack to this, which never had been properly released. And, uh, you know, he came to New York and he did a, uh, a Q&A about it that I was able to see in Queens, which, uh, which was nice. And, and they're pushing, there's now a, like a, a, a stage show of Emmett Otter that's now touring. Um, the This special had a limited run in theaters for its, maybe they're going off the American release of that because if it was came out on HBO in 78 it is the 40th oh, yeah. anniversary you know so that there were, there was some limited runs and then I talked to people through my life who knew this and had seen it growing up and this is just as important to them as say the Muppet movie was to me yeah. you know this was the Christmas thing you'd put on you'd put on the Charlie Brown Christmas special you'd put on whatever other, you know Frosty the Snowman and you'd the claymation stuff and then you'd put Emmett Otter on so um, yeah it's interesting it's, 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 it's enthralling to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly... It's something, all right. No, I mean, it's... Uh, the, thing I, the thing I do appreciate about Henson now that I never would have appreciated as a kid is uh, the sheer brilliance of him and his team to be able to pull off... Well, the ambition he has. Magic. Yeah. You know, like, really movie magic. I mean, it's... We talk about it with Labyrinth. Uh, and we talk about it in, 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 in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too, but uh, we talk a lot about in Labyrinth how it was, you know, the, the real special thing about Labyrinth uh, as a movie fan watching it today is to just see that it was, <clears throat> to use the word you just used, pe the penultimate of like physical. Yeah. Effects. Like it was using every trick in the book. Now, see, when you point that out to me when we did Labyrinth, now that's in my head. So when I watch this, it's the same thing. Like, yeah. You know, it's like uh, in, in Emmett Otter, he's doing everything he could Up possibly have done point. to that 1977. Yeah, it's a, that, like the you know? ambition and then just the And pulling it off. Yeah, that's, yeah exactly. You know, Not only the ambition to do it, yeah. but then having the, like, the brilliance. And having a team yeah. that could pull it off and and do it and actually do it is really one amazing, two totally commendable. 
and three, like, really special. (laughs) I mean, for people, whether you grew up, like, I didn't, like I said, I didn't see this movie until I was 20, uh, or the special until I was 20, and even then I probably didn't notice it as much as I noticed it when we watched it today. I mean, it's just... uh, to sit there and, and, you know, not the very opening with Kermit, but to see, you know, watching it now and seeing Emmett and his mom on the rowboat on the boat and looking at it and be like, wait a second. Yeah, they're moving. <laughs> <laughs> they're singing. Like how? And the sky, the skyline is changing. Yeah, it's, it's like, it really know, is. It's it's un- it's unbelievable. I, I, I know a friend of mine, a coworker who has a daughter who, and this is a guy who's watched it since childhood. So he loves it. He showed it to his daughter and his daughter thought that it's the fir- it was her first Muppet kind of a thing. Yeah. Because she's used to CGI now because yeah, the kid's yeah. little. So she thought it's real. She's like, oh, I didn't know, you know, possums or foxes could talk because to her, cartoons or whatever is cgi stuff you see now so when she sees live action puppets to her it's it's real you know it's like we've you know it's like watching movies where the dogs talk and stuff like that you know so it's 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 the imagination of i mean this is a dry run for the muppet movie that comes out in 79 that they want to um the idea was they wanted to test some things out and see if they're able to do things uh with a longer form that gets away from the Muppet Show because in the Muppet Show they're not it's they're not doing as abstract. The Muppet Show is very abstract with a lot of some of the vignettes and stuff they would do. Where yeah. this was going to be much more character driven. Period. Uh, you know, more, environment. I mean, the, well, the Muppet Show, by nature of it being a variety show, is a fixed location. Yeah. So they can build a set, a, an yeah. indoor set and just and do it. Whereas the, the Muppet Show takes it past this. And takes it out into the real world. Oh, Emmett Otter. Well, the Muppet movie takes oh, well. it past Emmett Otter. Yeah, it takes it out like onto the streets and like yeah. <laughs> and stuff in the real world. But this you're, this is a very important stepping stone. Where yes, this is all shot with the, inside a, a soundstage, but it's shot, you know, not in. I mean, it is physically a fixed location, but not a fixed set you know like yeah. in that there's a town and there's a river and you know it's not just like a backstage and a stage. yeah like a, like an old-fashioned like theater yeah it, and, and i mean they have it, the studio is so large that they shot this and they had like cherry pickers to have the some of the puppeteers in so yeah. it's like and then they had various scales of this town they built and they had moving rivers and they had a skyline that would change that i guess was set on a timer that every i don't know three or four minutes would go from dark to night i mean they must be able to control it when they're doing other shots yeah, but, yeah. and then this um uh faraz for farakas f-a-z-f-a-z-a-k-a-s he's this yeah faz fazakas he is the real guy who's the first person the in henson's troop of uh puppet uh designers who starts doing all this radio controlled stuff and yeah. using like the glove mitt, which I think is a forerunner to what you start seeing in the 80s and 90s, where they do with CGI, where the puppeteer is basically has his hands in a mitt, and the mitt is controlled, has all wire soaked up to it, and whatever you do with your hand while you're in the mitt, it's remote controlling, yeah. sending to the puppet that's that's you can't be have access to, and it's mimicking you. Yeah. So in these sequences where you have um, uh, Emmett Otter and his ma in the rowboat. Well, I mean, you can you know, even see s- similar things in like uh, some of the the Return of the Jedi, yeah, behind this, you know. But this is 
Or almost, well, that's how Kermit's like dri- Joe, driving like, a bike, you know? Kermit's yeah. on a freaking two-wheel bike going down the street. <laughs> you know, it's like, what the hell the hell are they doing that? He's talking and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but this idea of, like, the remote uh, yeah. thing, we see, we see it in other stuff, but, yeah, it's very, what it's how they try to do CGI now. There's a uh, There was a traveling Cause they, show. Because they take it to, yeah, because then what they end up doing is they start doing it so you can wear the mitt and then translate into a computer, and yeah. then that's how you get a performance of cap- motion captures in the computer. There was a show... Um, that was like Dinosaurs Alive or something, and it was a traveling show. And Oh, I remember this. And uh, this person that, I, that I'm very close to is in the whole puppet community. She went to puppet school, and some of her friends were the puppeteers for this dinosaur thing, and you, they were basically doing that at Madison Square Garden, like you know where the where they set up like the sound booth, they had the mitt and they were working the giant, yeah, like uh, dinosaurs that are on the floor of Madison Square Garden, like for the show, but they're doing it remotely, just like Emmett Otter, yeah, <laughs> and, and taking it to that extent, you know, and they have somebody that's you know driving it around to move it around the thing, but in terms of they're controlling the, 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 the mouths, and yeah, the, and the and the hands and stuff, that's all being. That was all being uh, controlled. Yeah, and it's remotely. stuff you, you see also when you get into labyrinth and all that kind of shit. But it's just amazing, and certainly, I think if you look at the the, the technical prowess of each Muppet movie, with the '79 one and then the Caper to, to Muppets Take Manhattan, you start seeing them doing bigger things. Where you know, uh, by the time the Muppet Caper, there's a whole, or is it? Is it either? No, actually, you know what? It might be. Um, might be the the uh, Muppets Take Manhattan. Where are they in Central Park? Where they're yeah. all on the bikes? Yeah, and I then there's so, this yeah. huge long shot, and it's to this day people still ask how you did it, and there's a trick that if you know the trick, you know it. But it's you know it's it's almost like a magician trick of how they were able to get like I don't know twenty Muppets on two wheel bicycles on a you know out on a location in Central Park, riding singing a song to like you know a sequence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well that's the you know that's the beauty of Jim Henson. You know, it's not just. Some people would be happy to rest on their laurels. Their su- success with something, they do it well, but it takes like a it takes a certain kind of person to say like we can do it better, yeah, or we can make it bigger. We can, you know, okay, we have them driving a car, but l- let's get a shitload of them on bicycles, <laughs> two wheeled bicycles. <laughs> let's figure out how to do. How could we do it? You know, let, let's just say imagination run wild. What's a see that we would love to see? Okay, now how do we pull it off? Yeah, and he's able to f- with his with his tight crew because he had like this troop, and he and he would take these guys around like Frank Oz or the uh, the other guy. Um uh, Jerry Nelson and all these people, he would bring them all up, and they they would work on the various specials and Henson. So, you know, it's it, I guess it's with anybody. You've got a studio band you're working with. It's like you like the players and all that. So, you know, he meets Henson meets Paul Williams because Paul Williams is a guest spot on the on the Muppet movie on the Muppet Show. Uh, and it's funny because that one of my favorite Paul Williams songs is just an old fashioned love song that he then wrote that. Three Dog Night went up and, and recorded, but he's performing that on the Muppet Show, and there's various versions of him coming out of the radio. So by the end of it, he's sing- there's like four or five different Paul Williamses together. But he's there, and Henson's like, "Hey, you know, would you want to go work on this, you know, Emmett Otter thing with me?" And or he, he, I think he was also pitching him the Muppet Movie, saying, "Would you like to be part of the Muppet Movie?" And then uh, you know, Paul Williams was a fan of him going back to the Sullivan days because people don't also realize. 
which I think we talk about in the labyrinth, but the the back history with Henson is that he got into this through commercials. Yeah. He was doing all kind of commercials and, and it became pretty lucrative to him in the sixties doing all these various commercials with puppets and stuff. And then it got <coughs> onto the, the Ed Sullivan show. And then he was even in, I think the first season of Saturday night live. Yeah. They had they all, would, they would do skits. They had skits and that didn't work out. Like, I don't know. They were just, it didn't translate well. So I think by season two, you know, they, they kind of dropped that from the Saturday night live kind of uh, format. Yeah, well, I mean, I always find it interesting because we always think of Jim Henson, you know, this puppet guy. But <clears throat> it's my recollection that when he started out, he didn't really give a shit about puppets. No, like, he it, just it wasn't, felt like this is a niche yeah, that I can fill. Find something you can do and do it well <laughs> with his wife. Him and his wife got you married. Know, like, and it were, wasn't like he grew up and was like, I'm going to be the greatest puppet, you know, innovator of all time. Yeah. But he just kind of said, hey, you know. Nobody's doing that right now. Yeah. We could do that. I've got a talent for it. You know, <laughs> you know let's just do that. And then creates an empire based on it. Yeah. I mean, because it was kind of primitive puppeteering before that with Marionettes. I wonder or... if after that he ever, you know, if it was one of those things where he ever then felt like typecasted by it. Like, did he want to really do other shit? Well, maybe that's why he was branching out and doing like the fairy tale well, theater yeah, or the... But still it was all puppet oriented. Yeah. You know? I wonder if he ever wanted to just... Like a creature-ish, like yeah. Ninja Turtles and stuff. He would aid in something you couldn't really do, I guess, without the work of this. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like him being a, uh, you know, he's an illusionist or a magician. You know, the, yeah. the, he's able to just uh, have the audience look away from the gag because you're looking at something else and you don't realize this beautiful. I mean, there's scenes in the Muppet movie where they're driving and I think he's he's in a uh, Studebaker and it's like how are they doing you know how who's driving the car <laughs> you know it, yeah. I mean there's a I might have said this before but there's a sequence in the the well, I, I keep we keep talking about the Muppet Christmas special that I love from 87 where Fozzie meets a snowman outside and they start dancing and Fozzie's like oh we're going to become a, a, a you know we'll become a, a team and so he goes back inside to audition for Kermit and the 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 uh, snowman starts doing jokes and behind him uh, Fozzie's standing there and Fozzie's doing that thing you see like you know in the old vaudeville days Ben Crosby or Bob Hope will do in the background where he's like you know he's like doing that little dance like you know yeah, yeah. and it's like how are you having a puppet do that but it's a you don't even you don't even second guess it you're like oh you know of course that's you know when you look at uh, like you look at the Emmett Otter you're, you think you know one you, you see there's sticks on their hands there's one guy controlling the mouth, and then there's there has to be at least two to people per puppet. You know, like the magic of all this. One person's controlling the mouth and hand. The other one, the other hand is maybe controlling the do- dominant arm or whatever that thing is doing. And then there's another one there that's doing something else with that hand. And then when you get into stuff like Ralph the Dog, who's playing a piano, where there's a guy, <laughs> and then there's another guy playing the piano. It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's so, it becomes, and you hear this from actors who've gone and done stuff on Sesame Street or Michael Caine talks about this when he did the Christmas Carol where, you know, for the first couple minutes it's off-putting, but then within a half hour you're only interacting with the puppet, you know, and it gets to be where even off-camera you're still talking to the puppet and you don't realize that the guy is, you know, under the, under the table with a monitor, yeah. You know, with a headset mic, and he's the guy you should be talking to, but you're totally engaged, and you're committed, and you believe that you know, who you're talking to, your fellow thespian, is, yeah. is real. So it, I find that intriguing. You know, that's, that's fascinating. So, Well, I mean, that's the talent of a performer, you know, yeah. to make it not only life-like, make it real on camera, but 
the fact that they make it real. And that's like the best thing, in my opinion, the best Muppet related things of all time are the all the outtakes. Oh, or the yeah. this or the or the tests. Oh, that's for yeah. the Muppet movie. You know, when you see them, where they're just doing it for themselves. Yeah, they're just seeing if it'll work, and they're just messing and they just like, they can't help the, even when they're making themselves laugh, but on some kind of, uh, you know, uh, reflex when they laugh when they're laughing at each other, they make the puppets laugh too. Yeah. Because they don't have to do that. No. But I think it's just they stay in character. So you basically just see like Fozzie and Kermit in those outtakes of the Muppet movie, just goofing off. And yeah, they're in a car ad libbing, or they're like interviewing a cow, a, like a, a, cow, real, a yeah. real cow. They're in England and they're doing. <laughs> they're just looking at camera tests of how the puppets look, and they're talking to cows and this, or they're in a car. And then other thing, when they're in a car, it's like they just look like they're sitting there. Yeah, yeah. But you have to think physically, logistically. There's a guy. That's you know cramped on the on the bottom on the floorboards, but his hands up. There's somebody else driving the car, and then there's somebody in who's holding a camera, taping the whole thing. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. where is that? You know, so it's just well. Also, you know, the thing about puppetry, which is very interesting, and uh, because of the person I know that's in puppetry, and I helped them make a film, and you see it in some of the behind the scenes stuff with here because they use uh, some marionettes. Uh, you know, I think you know as a moviegoer, we see Emmett as a character, we see Ma as a character, but to make everything happen, they could ma- have to use, you know, several different puppets that each do a different thing. Yeah. It's like when they use a dog in a movie, and each dog is trained to do something yeah, <laughs> run, specific. Run out, yeah. And so, uh, you know, they have to they build several different ones. You know, whether it's this one's eyes move, or you know, this one is b- you know big. You know, a friend of ours who did uh, came on and did the the uh, the. Blues Brothers episode with us on the Halloween episode. Mike Vanderbilt a couple weeks ago posted a picture of this giant gizmo. Oh yeah, costume from the original Gremlins for, for the close-ups, which I don't know if it was ever really used. But this idea of, for the close-ups, they would have this giant yeah. like gizmo head. That's like Star Trek Two, where you had the you know the Wrath of Khan. You'd have that thing going in the ear. Oh yeah, yeah. they did a huge mock-up giant of ear. an ear that's like you know five feet long and you have for this close-up as opposed to trying to get in there which I, is you know I guess brilliant yeah I mean I think it will be interesting to see you know now that we're, we're probably we're now getting probably the first generation of uh, kids young adults that want to make movies that are inspired by things in the advancements of CGI and stuff that our generation just wasn't, didn't have to be inspired by. You know, like, we grew up with the movie Magic to us was practical effects and makeup effects or, uh, you know, the the plate glass back, you know, uh, what's it called? You love talking about matte paintings? Matte paintings and stuff. You know, we grew up being able to see all this stuff for the first time, all this behind-the-scenes footage and uh, even the puppets, you know, whether it's Jabba the Hutt and Yoda or Kermit and Emmett Otter, seeing all this stuff and then seeing how it was all done and having not just the finished product capture our imaginations, but the idea of doing it, Yeah, you know, watching 
whoever Tom Savini doing it like a Jason, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, or uh, you know Dick Smith's, you know Linda Blair heads and whatnot. Like seeing this or Freddy Krueger makeups and seeing this and being like, you know, being in awe and like wa- geeking out to it and yeah. wonder of like wow like that there this is how you make magic like the cinema like cinema to me i mean it is first and foremost to me movies and what i love about them is the escape but also the movies that we grew up with in awe of whether it be you know mad max beyond thunderdome to star wars or like anything that has some kind of fantastic futuristic or science fiction or horror element the idea of making it yeah like, the craft of the craft yeah. was just like there it is magic to well me. we you and i have talked about that we both had from a very young age the affinity for seeing the behind the scenes like what you're saying it's your yeah, point. yeah so and i remember you know from that jim henson hour which was in the late 80s uh, there was an episode where it's all behind the scenes, and he shows you. It's like you know he's pulling the curtain back, like Dick Smith would do, and he's showing you how they're doing everything. And that's like you're seeing how they're using that mitt to do the CGI or to to very uh, basic computer effects. And he's showing you how do you do this and what you just said. There we have three different puppets. We have a live action dog, and we have you know. So in that special, which was such an eye opener, they had all these behind the scenes um, footage from the Muppet movie, a uh, Muppet show. Yeah. And you'd see them doing like the, uh, the, the what's that, the, the um, uh, we're in the Navy, that's YMCA. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, not YMCA, what's the name of that? The uh, Village People. Village People. They, they take that song, in the Navy, and they do like Vikings. And it, you see the behind <laughs> the scenes of them all, yeah. and, and you don't realize that everything's up on platforms, because the people, the, the puppeteers have to stand there with their arms raised. Yeah. So everything is shot so high, so when they have a, prota- a practical like guest star on, they're up, I guess what, like you'd say maybe eight, nine feet in the air on a set. And I've never... Seen any pictures of what it looks like being up there looking down? Yeah, but you got to be just on, I guess, a couple pieces of plywood or whatever, and then all around you there's holes because you got to have the puppets, the people be able to move through. But it's just such an eye opener for me at such a young age, seeing this grainy, you know, probably reversal footage that you know is MOS or without sound that they end up later putting the soundtrack to the, the this song sequence, and you're seeing all these guys, you know, if there's 20 puppets within this Viking boat singing, yeah. you have you know 20 or more puppeteers together cramped you know with one arm in the air and they're they're all looking at monitors with these you know with these headset mics trying to do this and it's just so amazing and then there's just such this niche of like these puppeteers learning these puppets and then doing all this stuff like you're saying before is like it becomes second nature in character they're still this is what this person would do or this is what this um you know and paul williams when i saw him do this q a he was talking about like uh there's a sequence he said in the muppet show where uh, I forget what it was, but it's a very sad sequence, and Ralph's playing, and at the end of the sequence, Ralph the dog, he, he he's done with it. It's it, I think it's a ballad. He shuts the piano, and then he just tops, he taps the top of the piano lid that he just shut. He just, like, tap, tap, and he's like, that's enough of that for now. And, like, Paul Williams, like, that was, like, the most insightful, thoughtful thing I've ever seen. It was so genuine and, like, something like somebody would do, but it's his puppet doing this. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it's so mind-blowing, these little, you put this little, you know these little personal or like humanistic kind of attributes that are sub subconscious that we'll look at that makes us then believe whatever you're going to sell us. Yeah, you're going to have a freaking talking otter <laughs> rowing a boat. You know, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's unbelievable. So every year, it, Emmett Otter was never 
like my be all and end all Christmas special. Sure. I liked watching it every couple of years. I, I would even say, I don't know if I watched it every year, but every couple of years, hey, let's pop that in. But the more I watch it now getting older, the more I'm in awe of just like you're saying, the technical prowess of what these people are accomplishing with the rowboat and this and that, or they're yeah. dancing and then they're going to marionettes. And well, I just think the set, even the, the t- you know, take away the puppets. Yeah. You're just like the set design. They have these, yeah, they have the these miniatures huge, to the, to, to like the full, the, the life size town. And the, the skylines changing. And, you know, they I mean, have, it really is beautiful. They made a whole valley because there's, there's establishing shots where you see the camera comes around and you see like birds flying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, and it's, and it's from like a, you know, the November. November, I guess season into the holiday. So, so by this by Act Two, you've got you've got um, snow on the ground, and you know everything is also. You're clearly having two or three different sets. They have to completely build from scratch. So it's it's just amazing. I yeah, mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's magic, is what it is. I mean, they just—it's beautiful. I mean, what they what they accomplished on just from that standpoint, yeah, is astonishing. Yeah. Dion, can we take a break for a second so that I can talk about something that's been on my mind? Sure, Blake. What's that? Well, you know what a lot of people have that, unfortunately, others don't, including Ma and Emmett Otter? Uh, A hole in the wash tub? Well, yes, that, but also financial security. And now that we're getting a little older, my ignorance about finances and the intimidation that comes with not knowing much about the stock market... It's starting to worry me. It's a bit of a cliche, but you know, there's an app for that. What do you mean? There's an investing app called Robinhood that lets you buy and sell stocks, electronic funds transfers, options, and cryptos. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. And there's no commission fees. No commission fees? That's right. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. So I can trade stocks and keep all my profits. That's awesome. But you know, Dion, I'm not great with all this newfangled app technology. That's okay, because it's easy to use. The charts and market data they supply are easy to understand, and you can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. And it is intuitive, so you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. And here is the best part. Robinhood is giving you and our listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help you build your portfolio. Wow, that's awesome. Something tells me I should go to SaturdayNight.RobinHood.com to get started. <laughs> Your instincts are correct, my friend. Go to SaturdayNight.RobinHood.com to get your free stock and start investing. Today. <laughs> Today. <laughs> and uh, Henson, for me, I've noticed he, you know, he has these great... It, on the maybe this is what makes him a legend. It's like you know, it's just one thing him doing everything like that. But then he's telling good stories, and he's having these kind of. I mean, granted, this was a, a property that he acquired. It wasn't something he did himself. But he's telling these stories that are like almost life lessons for kids. Sure, you know, and this is what I love. You know, about the here in the Emanator book, where it's like, uh, if if we want to dive into the book a little bit, where they you know they live um, in uh, Frogtown Hollow, and uh, there's no electricity in Frogtown Hollow, but over in Waterville there is electricity. Which hence, you know, the, a little while later, you, or, or River Bend, uh, you find out that's why that you know you have a rock band because they have electricity. Mm-hmm. So there's you know there's no electricity in in where Emmett Otter lives and all that kind of a thing, and it's also it seems like it's Depression era because the mill that the, that everyone used to work at has closed down, so now everyone's coming back. Nobody has money, so. 
you have uh, this idea of Pa Otter. You know, he's out of the picture. And my broader point is that, like, Jim Henson, he teaches these things to these people, these the kids, where it's like, even though Pa, you know, we never see him, he's very much within the story. You know, Pa taught us this. This is, He would sing these songs. You know, and then there's... So, yeah. so to pass the time... Uh, Emmett and his mom, they would they would read books to each other, they would sing songs to each other, and that's the reason why when it gets to Christmas time, they want to make this Christmas be a special Christmas because the year's been so hard for them. Yeah. Where like uh, Emmett's mom is, she's washing clothes by hand, you know, and, and for other people. But then because the mill's closed, nobody has money. People are doing all these chores themselves, so it's becoming harder to get put you know food on the table. So by the time Christmas comes, there's no money, you know. She's so being turned out, yeah, she, yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's like doing everything to support a support a living, you know. So they they want to make this 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 special this Christmas. So that's why it's like this this um what is the selfishlessness where it's like uh, Emmett wants to get her a piano because he knows she likes to sing. That'll help her. Mm-hmm. Where. Uh, Ma wants to get him a guitar because he eyes the guitar and he likes to see. You know, it's like so these, and then you you end up giving up, which goes back to the uh, Muppets uh, Sesame Street Christmas special where there is a scene where you know Bert and Ernie want to get each other a present. They go to Mister Hooper, but they have nothing. They have, don't have any money. So what they're ending up doing is they're giving away their favorite things. So like. Um, I th- you know, uh, Bert has a paperclip collection. Or no, Ernie has a paperclip collection he loves. So he has to give that away to get uh, Bert his favorite cigar box or something. Yeah. And then this, you know, Bert ha- has, you know, it, it's that, that time well, it's tested. Also, it's also a, like a very child thing. Yeah. You know, because children don't own, they don't have jobs. Yeah. They don't have, they don't really have a, like, you know, maybe they get to a certain age they can break leaves or whatever yeah but you know what they do have is possessions and so if they want something that's why you, you trade your snacks at lunch or you trade baseball cards you know like yeah. you have to barter and, and and it's such an admirable thing where like you know emmett he's gonna break the wash tub because it's, it's not because he wants to go fuck off with his friends and yeah and be an ass he was trying to make a jug band so he can win this contest to win money so his mom won't have to do this anymore and the same thing with the, with Ma. Ma wants to, you know, the, I think she sells her the, her husband's tools that Emmett's using so that she can get the fabric, so she can make a dress, so she can go sing these songs. You know, it's I, you know all it's all these life lessons that then like at the end of the Sesame Street Christmas special, you know, uh, Mr. Hooper comes and gives the stuff back, and he's like, he, even though he's like, even though I'm Jewish, I understand your your um you know your 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 belief system. Yeah, your, your belief system and your ritual. And you've taught me, you've given me a present by seeing how love you you guys each gave up something for each other. You know, it's very nice. And I love that the idea of that these these like selfishness themes that they have in these, you know, in the special and, and Henson would have in a bigger, you know, an idea yeah. in all these. Um you even look at the Muppet movie, uh in that Paul Williams Q and A uh I talked about where uh I think he was. They were already talking about doing the Muppet movie, like I said, and they brought him on to do this to see if they can do some stuff. So he's sitting here trying to like think about songs, and then when he goes and does the Muppet movie, he's thinking like they want to have like a Pinocchio moment, like a uh, somewhere. Um, that's not somewhere over the rainbow, but what's the what's the when you wish upon a star? When it, yeah, and that's the, that's basically what the rainbow connection is. You know, that's the song, and so it's that kind of idea, and you want to be able to at the same time separate and make Kermit. Almost doubting in the Rainbow Connection, the song they're separating Kermit and Jim Henson from the world, so that you can identify with them. So by the end of it, 
Kermit's proving, like he's saying, like you know, he doesn't know if that's <coughs> true with the other side of rainbows. Yeah, you know. So there's this great idea system where uh, Paul Williams comes in and writes these songs, and you know, I, I feel like Paul Williams is an unsung. He's like a hidden gem of America, where I, I absolutely adore his music, and you know, he's a, he's an actor, but he's also a songwriter. And in my personal opinion, he writes just such great songs. I mean, there's stuff where he wrote for the Carpenters, he wrote for all these bands. You know, A Star Is Born, he wrote for yeah. the, the 70s one, he did this, this stuff for the Muppets, but Bugsy Malone, like I said, he did Phantom of Paradise. But he's writing stuff which, like, uh, you know, We've Only Just Begun, just an old-fashioned love song, uh, You and Me Against the World, like all these, the, the theme to the love boat, like this stuff that you know that are like Grammy award-winning stuff. And then when you look at... Sh- songs and Emmett Otter it's like they're just as good yeah. like all this the lyricism and all that kind of stuff and like and it's amazing that Paul Williams starts out as an actor and he can't really you know get anywhere because he's not like a leading man or whatever so he says okay let me start trying to write and he writes like uh, I think he writes We Only Just Begun for a bank commercial and then the Carpenter scene like oh we want to record that song he's like sure and they record it and it becomes like you know sure. cinema or, or you know Grammy Gold and all it's, it, so I love his songwriting because it's just all his songs have this great kind of momentum and not only like rhythm and and uh arranging but the lyrics to me are great and like moving right along like they have like this that like they talk about in the Emmett Otter uh, special where it's like this stomp to it to me you can always tell like a Paul Williams kind of a, a like it's like a like a like a knee slapping kind of like moving right along but the dumb but the dumb like that you know, uh, Bugsy Malone, we could have been anything that we wanted to, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to like, you know, group, you know, what do you call that? Like put your, move your head to, and like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, I, I love it. And, and it, it's unbelievable for me that he's able to parlay that into an acting career where he's in smoking <laughs> the bandit. You know, he was a staple on the, uh, Johnny Carson show, you know, where he became one of these people. Oh, Hey, look, it's Paul Williams, you know? Yeah. And he almost fell into obscurity again until, you know, recently he's back and he's, you know, he did stuff with Daft Punk on the random access memories, uh, he's he's now in Goliath that um, show with Billy Bob Thornton that's on. You know he's in and he's now doing this stuff, the Emmett Otter stuff. It's just I can't wax enough about how much I love Paul Williams and, and just his music and him writing these these beautiful you know the Rainbow Connection. It's like one of the beautiful, most beautiful songs of all time. You know I would stack him against any you know like a you know a Neil Diamond or all these you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wh- whoever the the songwriters of the time were. You know yeah. Uh, and then he comes and writes these songs. He wants to write these for, for Emmett Otter were you know, of old Americana, like a Stephen Foster. Like they've been here for hundreds of years. These you feel like these things have legs. Like even the, um, the what is that? The the barbecue song, uh, Mama's Barbecue. To me, that's very much going back to Robert Johnson. What's the sure. song? Uh, <coughs> hot tamales are hot red hot, and they're Mama's got them for sale. You know. Like it's it's got that kind of Alan Lomax. Well, his years. stuff in general has uh, you know the kind of thing that we were talking about at the beginning of the show with the Christmas carols, you know, the Christmas songs, the hol- the holiday songs. Yeah. Of how you know that they are they feel like they've been around forever, but they you know they really weren't. They're featured in a movie in the fifties or whatever, and you know for us, you know, being a lot younger than that, they were around yeah. <laughs> since before us, but. Uh, his songs do have that kind of feel, and I think that's why, in some ways, they're timeless because they never, f- in my opinion, they don't ever feel like they didn't feel of the time they were recorded that they were recorded. Yeah. 
so they just feel like they've they're these standards that have always been around yeah like you know it's familiar mm-hmm. even you don't know why even though it's new you know yeah. i mean and that's a talent yeah you know that's and, a, and a sensibility that not everybody has that it's and it's a it's a genuine sensibility you yeah know? you can't fabricate that like yeah. that just comes out of him and it's weird to think that when you realize you put all these puzzle pieces together, he's behind all this stuff. Like, he's the guy who did, you know, Bugsy Malone was huge when it came out. And I don't know if, I think it's maybe forgotten now, but Phantom of Paradise, that came, that was something also big when it came out. I think that's developed a significant cult following that mm-hmm. maybe Bugsy Malone hasn't. Uh, but like the Muppet movie, he's behind all that stuff. Like, you know, like I said, the Rainbow Connect, yeah. all these, you know, uh, he told a very funny story, which I think I had heard before, but there's a song in the Muppet movie that, um, he didn't realize at the time that Miss Piggy sings called Never Before, where when she, she when they meet her at the talent contest, she's like about to th- accept the uh, award for the beauty pageant from Elliot Gould, and she sees Kermit, and all of a sudden she's just, you know, never before, have two eyes so slowly. You know. she, he said, like, he wrote that with Frank Sinatra in my mind, because in those years, in like the 70s, like, never before, <laughs> yeah, have two yeah. hearts run so freely and so fair. You know, he ended up getting Johnny Mathis to do it live, like, there's a a special called like Muppets Go to Hollywood and he had famous people write stuff and I think it's the early 80s but he had Johnny Mathis sing it and you could see like these songs like oh yeah you know you could see a Sinatra of the late 70s the, the main event yeah. singing like you know no, never again <laughs> you know like it's like oh yeah you could see him because t- he was doing stuff like that at the time and also you I know? think what's interesting about this movie in terms of the, the music is as you kind of insinuated with the or referred to with the book is that there are song titles already established yeah that, I mean, so then he had to write songs to these titles that were already already existed yeah i mean there's songs like uh down the slide with dora uh swimming nelly home the bathing suit that grandma that grandma otter wore which is the first song they sing uh while they're coming up uh in the rowboat we'll be go- we'll go fishing in the moonlight uh, and then downstream where the river meets the sea, which is the end one at the end. And there's a whole bunch of other songs in here too. That, uh, but he just, you know, grabs various ones and then puts something together, which is you know amazing. I, to me, it always blows my mind at the end of this when he when he does that uh, when they merge those two songs together. Yeah. You know, and you being someone, I mean, and we could full disclosure. I can proudly say that I'm a co-writer of a song. <laughs> That's true. Because I, I collaborated with you and we did a song together on your, was it your last Blues album? Well, it's my first and last but it's Yeah, but it's not going to be your last. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, my, it's the only one I have debut. so far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, When You're the Coming Home. The title song, When You're Coming Home. Yeah. Well, it, no, we did Ain't, Ain't No Good at Loving You. <laughs> Ain't No Good at Loving You. But the, the title track in the, in the album is called When You're Coming Home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, talking to someone you who were you were a musician and you're you're well versed in this than i ever am yeah, about yeah. trying to come up with stuff like that and like it's amazing that those say the end those two songs that she sings and he sing that they sing they stand together kind of on their own and then when you put them together like a puzzle they work perfectly and he yeah. said that you know he wrote them he wrote them as one song and then he was able to pull them apart and, yeah. and then have the answer be like you know instruments so that when you put them together they can answer each other yeah i always find that I mean, that's something that I would never be able to do, but um, to me, and this is, I don't want to bring up like the controversy of this song, and I don't think it's worth getting into because I, I think it's kind of silly, but the Baby It's Cold Outside. Oh, yeah, this like, recently. I've, but I've always loved that song because... Oh, the back and forth? 
It, yeah, the back and forth because it's almost like melodically they're singing two different. So it's almost like it's two different yeah, songs. Yeah, baby, it's cold outside. I, I really can't stay, but it's cold outside. I really got away, but baby, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then they hit together. Then it's cold outside. Yeah, it's just but, back but and it forth. But it really is like melodically there's two different things going on in that song. And yeah. I've always Musically. Yeah, and I've always felt that I've always loved that song because the cleverness of having it almost be two. They're singing two different songs at the same time, even yeah. though like thematically... It's the same. The words are telling a story, the same story. And but, they come together But, on but the kind hook. of melodically, they're singing two different songs. I always thought that was really interesting. And uh, a guitar player that Dion and I know, John Pizzarelli, sometimes he, he does like American Songbook and standards and jazz and stuff like that. But he does a... Uh, occasionally his wife is a singer and they'll do shows together. And they do songs where they do that. Yeah. Like they'll sing two different songs. Like... Uh, she'll say, I forget what song she'll sing, but he'll sing like "We're in the Money," and she sang some other song. They that, work. Then they somehow manage to. Yeah, they're singing two different songs, but at the same time and weaving in and out of each other. Yeah. I mean, it takes. I mean, he's an exceptional. I mean, he's one of the greatest guitar players, John Petrelli. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, so you know, if anybody could do it, it's someone like him. But I, I've always been in awe of that kind of a thing. Yeah, and, and I, I and I, so you know, obviously, it's beautiful, but beautifully done in in this. Yeah, it, it, in the uh, I've always enjoyed that too. That idea of you take like you know, you and I are big fans of Louis Prima. Him and his Keely Smith, they would do that a lot in their stage act. He, they would sing stuff. I like the idea of. Not so much like a male and female, like Louis Prima, I think, in her played on, not like sexual tension, but they played on like the the male role and the female role. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, embrace me, and then, you know, he's doing something else in the background. She's singing like a ballad, and then he's singing funny stuff in the background and making the crowd laugh, but it works, you know. I, and so I, so I like that idea of, you know, two people, a male and female, or two males, two, you know, you get it a little bit with the Rat Pack. But they're doing, you know, this shtick, or, or like you're saying, two different songs, but they're, it's the same song. Yeah. So at the end of this, when they when they come in and they 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 add this in, it's just amazing. It's like, oh my god, why didn't they take this before? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So so, you know, uh, the whole thing here is they want to go to the talent show. With this is within the book, and the talent shows in Waterville. It's two days before Christmas. They're from Frogtown Hollow. Uh, so mom goes to the to the talent show in the in the book, and she sings um, "We'll Go Fishing in the Moonlight," and then she sings an encore, uh, "Swimming Nelly Home," and then uh, they go on and they sing. Uh, let's see, no, let me think of this. No, then they go sing their song, and then Riverbend. This is a band from Riverbend comes, and their their band is called the Riverbend Nightmare. And they sing the River Bottom Rock, and then they're uh, with all these lights and crazy stuff. They set all this stuff up. And there's in the book. There's tons of people. Like they have like a proper. They have rabbits that are like controlling lights. They yeah, set a light yeah. show. It's like like the really whole crew. Yeah, whole stage crew. Yeah, it's like it's Alice Cooper seventies <laughs> Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, you know pyrotechnic. Yeah, no, they do. That's the whole thing of it because they have electricity in this town. And then they do an encore. They do Swampland Stone, and. Uh, it's sad because in the book, like they they go into like how amazing the uh, River Bend, their their River Bend nightmare and their songs they sing. Where in uh, when you get to the to the part of the book where they're talking about uh, mom singing, they'll just say mom sang her song next, 
and it was like a whisper far away that nobody could hear. And that's it. Yeah. About how mom said that about the two songs, you know. And then came the Frogtown Hollow Jug Band, which is our guys. And when Emmett and Harvey and Wendell and Charlie played their music, it didn't seem to make any more of a sound than crickets and night peepers. And that was it. Yeah, you know, so it's like so they, in the book they kind of bomb. Yeah, they bomb, you know, and then like there are a few more acts, blah blah blah, and then the you know the fifty dollar pl- prize goes to Riverbend Nightmare, and then on the way home in the book they start, you know, uh, she's singing Sister Possum, and they start singing with her, and they of course they pass, uh, uh, what is it, Mayor Bullfrog, and he's the kind of, and this is a, again what Paul Williams brings up where he's kind of given like the life lesson. It's because of him they're only only able to then figure out what they need to do where he's like you guys at the end of the show he's like you know sorry you guys didn't win it's there but you guys just have to figure out fine tune it you know and then because he gives him that advice yeah you just that little give you that little (laughs) thing and it's only because of him giving that like life you know learning information they're able to come together sing on the way home and then when they pass his place he you know every they don't realize everyone's come outside to hear them singing this great song and then he's like, you know, shit, we'll pay you. What's your name? You know, come <laughs> on inside. Fuck. Fuck. Come we on didn't in know. There. Yeah, we did. We've been looking for entertainment all day. You know, it was too much to get the electric electric band in there. Uh, and then she she calls herself Ma Otter in the Frogtown Hollow Boys. And they go in. They get, you know, it's a pay regular right out of the book. That kind of, you get mashed potatoes? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, uh, you know, they get paid. And then at the end of the night, which is really nice at the end of the book, they come out three in the morning. They're about to walk home. And then Ma says, listen, we should sing a song for Pa. Because this is, you know, the Christmas Eve. So they sing uh, Downstream Where the River Meets the Sea. And that's the song that also is the end, ends, I think, the special. Yeah. And this becomes this beautiful song that's a a, a beautiful ballad that I didn't realize then when um, Jim Henson dies that at the the funeral service, uh, Jerry Nelson, who's the voice of Emmett who people will know he's from Fraggle Rock he's um let's see there's Kermit and then Kermit's little like his nephew what's his nephew his nephew's name is um Okay, I don't. When you put when you put people on the on the spot, you don't remember. <laughs> what is it, Dan? Uh, you know he that's that Jerry Nelson does it. You know, we, maybe you know. What do you think, Uncle Kermit? And then he's like, I don't know. Jeez, it's on the tip of my tongue. But Jerry Nelson and then the the lady uh, Madeline Sokol, they do this beautiful rendition of uh, where the river meets the sea at the funeral service, which is on YouTube, and it's really sad, and it becomes this beautiful. Almost like a traditional gospel ballad. Yeah, you know, John Denver recorded it too, and that's also very good. And that—that that was the thing, I guess, with Paul Williams making these songs. Well, he was going back to the Americana of, of it feeling like they're gospel. These numbers, like you're saying, they've been around for so long to have to give level like a credence to that to or this pop. Like it is almost like songs that Alan Lomax found in the '40s going around yeah. with his tape recorder. You know, so it's it's amazing. You know. Um, well, it's amazing because, I mean, I think, you know, he's even talked about how some of the stuff is, you know, was challenged because it wasn't, some of it's not the kind of thing he would normally do. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. But he was doing it at a time when, like, now we can go online and find anything. Yeah. You know, I always wonder, you know, when even when I'm interviewing composers for my book and they're doing, like, a period piece, like, do you need to, do you have to research to find to find music that sounds like that to figure out how to do it because you know back then it's like you had to find it 
You had to actually physically you know, you get off your ass. You couldn't just go on Google. Yeah, you had to go <clears throat> to a know. library or something. Yeah, or, or even yeah. that. I mean, if you go to, we were little, we go to a library, open a card catalog of research. But if you can't find it in your library, then you have to go someplace and search down what your uh, spiritual or a yeah. gospel song. So, yeah, when Williams is writing this stuff, to have that in that style, you have to probably do some extensive research. I mean, I don't research. know. I, I, maybe, he, maybe he's just talented enough that he didn't need to do that. Yeah. But, uh I always think like back then, if you needed to do it, you actually had to do yeah. it. Like well, it was a hunt. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't just going on. I'm gonna go on uh, iTunes and <laughs> I'm gonna go ask Jeeves and, and, and see what's going on. He says, you know, a lot of these songs here, he calls them codependent anthems. You know, uh, like he he calls them "ouch uh, mommy" songs, where it's like you know, it's a back and forth with these, yeah, you know, the kind of a thing. And uh, he he says, you know, that that. The, he never sing songs never pour out of him he doesn't like to squeeze the cat or stand on a hose he it kind of comes naturally kind of to a thing so when he's doing like uh you know the river meets the sea like the spiritual or gospel it has to have a lot of meaning you know and the big thing in here is like you know dad is father's missing dad is gone it's you know it's it's you got to make that relevant and there's a big emphasis i mean like the first line in the book uh, of Emmett Otter from 71 is, I think, you know, uh, uh, Christmas is coming and it's coming fast. Uh, when they set the when they set the landscape, when they cut to Emmett, it's like Emmett Otter's father was dead and his mother took in washing. You know, it's like <laughs> you're laying it down. We're in, yeah. I don't know if, I guess Kermit does say that and kind of sets the stage here, but you have to, you know, uh, again, Emmett Otter's father, he was a traveling salesman. So he go up. So he wasn't even at home all the time, and as you alluded to, he was a snake oil salesman. So he would go up and you know go up to the different other up the river to the, and try to make enough money to come back, bring the money back. And then who knows whatever happened to him? Was he killed in a brothel? Was he killed in a fight? Was he killed in a card <laughs> yeah, game? Yeah. Did he fall off a riverboat? You know, it's that's that era. And now the family stuck you know without an income because you know he didn't uh, plan financially. <laughs> It wasn't fiscally responsible. You know, because at the time, you, you really couldn't. You know, so uh, it, it, there's a big um, a big theme of, like, the, the Pa Otter lessons that he taught them and what, what he had to instill in them, and that's what you get distilled in kind of like these songs. Um, and it's, 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 it's hard to keep that as a theme, to have all these, these kind of elements. Then you have something as... Uh, alien as the 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 river bottom nightmare band come and sing that song which is completely you know to me it's very 70s like alice cooper yeah very like uh scary right you know song about a nightmare band dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know it's like that'd be something i would love to hear you cover you know, <laughs> you know what i mean like it's like this is it's gonna be your encore you know and yeah, i would love yeah. to see like a band off of like dr teeth and the electric mayhem First, the Soggy Bottom Nightmare Band, and you know them them battle the bands. That would be a win. sweet battle of bands. Um, so yeah, it's 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 crazy, you know. And then, like we said, just the different, you know. I think to be, you know, brutally honest, I think some of the marionette stuff, maybe you know, some of that might not hold. But that's just, I mean, when I watch the Thunderbirds, the Jerry Nelson stuff, or I'm sorry, Jerry Anderson. I mean, some of that stuff, it's just it's hard for with a marionette kind of a thing to be able to get that to look. Like heavy, like a weight. So a lot of time in the sequences, it's it looks like they're floating. And yeah, their legs are, and their you legs know, are flapping. And sometimes, and, and you know, some people will say that's they're doing that on purpose to realize that there is a little of the like twenty percent. You have to use your imagination a little bit in this. You know, I think that's the only thing for me that kind of uh, 
makes you aware of what they're doing, but the other stuff where they're, you know, I I remember for years watching the opening sequence when they're singing uh, the the bathing suit that you know Grandma Otter, which I think is such a, I mean, those lyrics are amazing in there. Like, like, how are they doing this? Is are they underwater? It's like at the beginning of Rainbow Connection when they come this huge tracking shot into like a swamp, yeah. and all of a sudden Kermit's on a freaking log with a banjo singing Rainbow Connection. You're like, how are they doing? You know, is is someone under there in the water? It's like you know, you don't realize it could be remote controlled, or you know, it, it doesn't even occur to you. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing, and then even the whole idea of a jug band band. I'm, you know, I like the, you know, that's a real thing, the cigar box banjo, or you know, the jug. You know, that, that that's just back in the day, people you didn't have enough money to buy an instrument, so you, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, you made, we you made do, yeah. Like we, a lot of the guys, Blake and I, like the blue, old blues guys. You know, uh, they learned to. I mean, Les Les Paul's first guitar was what he took a rail iron, right? And he electrified a rail iron, I think, and and that's how he, you know, he maybe that. I don't know how he did it, but you know this yeah. is the first. Or Muddy Waters learned to play by just like stringing guitar strings on the side of his cabin. You know, yeah. it's like you're, you're doing well, that. That's you know, like Buddy Guy would take when his parents weren't looking. He would carefully pull the wires out of the screens in the window. Yeah, because he didn't have string. He didn't have guitar strings, and then he would. Wrap them, you know, put in nails and wrap them around nails, and then have you know, could put a bottle in so it acted like the bridge. And he would sit there and pluck this, <laughs> pluck these wires off the screen window that he would pull out of the screen window. I mean, they just you got the music in you. You gotta, you gotta make music. And that's just amazing that you're just sitting there doing some sort of like, you know, you're thinking that abstractly. I mean, you know, these are clearly people who maybe aren't educated because, you know, certainly back then, African-Americans, you're living on the plantation. You know, you may not be able to... Muddy Waters never knew how to write. He can just sign his name with an X. But you're having this innovation no matter what. You're like, I can figure out. And then yeah. suddenly you're making an instrument out of, you know, a you know, jug band. You know, and, and then when you get to the jug band, I like that, like, you know, the, what is it? The jug is the bass and the... Or yeah. no, maybe the jug well, is... I think it, traditionally the jug is supposed to be the bass, but then you have the... the, the Emmett's playing the bass too. He's playing the stand yeah, double up, bass. double bass, <laughs> the wash, the wash tub. No hole in the wash tub, you know that. And then with the with the kazoo, and then it's funny too because Paul Williams will write kazoo stuff. Like in his recording of just an old fashioned love song, there's a kazoo solo, which you don't think will work, but it's perfectly fine. You know, so when you're you know and that and your kazoo would be your lead instrument, maybe you know, yeah. or, you know, or, or you like the cigar box banjo, which is a, an, a, again a real thing. It's just it's you know, and then the end, I always found very much comfort. Like I said, I love the whole world they live in and the you know the, the side of the river. It's very much to maybe maybe the countryside where I grew up looking at. But I love at the end when they go to that theater. Uh, it's again very much like when I grew up in el- the elementary schools. I would go to the older. When you go to the auditorium, it looked a lot like that, you yeah. know, backstage. And I love that you see the, te- you know, the technology back there where you see them, you know, with, with bring the lights to half and you see them bringing it down. Bring it to full. It's like they, they include all that, you know, yeah. or the little like there's that little podium that the stage manager would have backstage just connected to the wall. It's all very authentic, like they're like they're in a real location shooting, you know, uh, and then, you know. Uh, Jim Henson loving these sequences where you'll have a whole uh, auditorium filled with Muppets. Like, you'd see that in the Muppet Show. Suddenly you get a reversal and there's a hundred freaking Muppets in the audience. You know, they have that. Those things, it's just, it's it's phenomenal. It's it's amazing. And, you know, that's where you have a lot of people like his daughter, Cheryl Henson, and other, they would have to get involved because everyone would have to man a puppet. Yeah. You know, that kind of a thing. I mean, it, it has a staying value and it's, 
it's crazy that I think this has endured, and, and certainly uh, I wasn't aware that there was a whole series of these Emmett Otter books or uh, Francis the Badger series. <coughs> but uh, it's it's pretty crazy to think then, like, you know, they were able to translate it so much that it's almost so um, uh, pure, or I guess, uh, you know, to the source material. Sure. You know, where you look at a lot of the pictures, it's it, it, they, they very much like, you know, it's almost like they're, their pre-production work was already done for them. Yeah. You know, and then uh, having, you know, Frank Oz there and they're having, they like you're saying, the behind-the-scenes stuff, there's some great uh, behind-the-scenes and then uh, bloopers in this where they're, where it's like, I guess the girl who sings uh, Madeline Sokol, she's not, she's a great singer, but she doesn't have the best puppeteering hand. So they had to have Frank Oz come in and Frank Oz performed Ma Otter on set. On set. So it was his voice almost sounding like Miss Piggy doing the entire thing. And then she had already recorded her songs. So what would happen is he would act out the puppet and, and do his own thing. But then when he would sing, he would sing to track. So he'd lip sync the puppet to her track. And then she would have to go into a booth and then lip sync his performance that he did the regular dialogue. Yeah. Do it that way. Kind of ADR it. ADR it that way. You know, t- you know nothing against her and her voice, but before I found that out, I always felt that her voice seemed kind of out of place. Like, yeah. It seemed like it wasn't part. It just didn't seem right. When you listen to Frank Oz's, do you think and he's, when you he hear, sounds when a little you natural? Hear, when you it, hear, but he sounds so much like he's. It's a. It's halfway between Miss Piggy and uh, and uh, Fozzie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. around here. But it, they all are, though, you know? because they all use the same people. Yeah, so yeah. Everybody, so you hear, everybody you hear Gonzo. Like, you hear, you know, yeah. the bear in the Nightmare Band sounds like Cookie Monster. Yeah, because it's you know <laughs> it's Frank Oz doing his deep voice. Exactly. <laughs> I'm hungry. You know, it's like, oh, okay, you know. Uh, there's what, there's something about when you watch the outtakes where it just it feels more natural. It feels more right. Yeah. Than, dub, than having it yeah. dubbed over. And there's, you know what, also, too, uh, sh- she brings maybe to her benefit like a le- like a like a motherly kind yeah, of like feel, a matronly. Yeah, but when presence. I watch Frank Oz, he has a little of that Muppet sarcasm in him, or he's saying like, oh, you know, he'll say something <laughs> under his breath, and you can tell it's very like Miss Piggy, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. that's you see that where there's a sequence where they go into town to the music store, and they're trying to get this shot of like uh, the they want the 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 Nightmare Band goes inside and they're doing some stuff and they want the this bass drum to come out and fall perfectly right. And I guess they, they rehearsed it, did it great, the rehearsal. They didn't shoot the rehearsal, so they're like, let's go. And they literally shot it 200 times, like 200 yeah. takes. And they couldn't get the, the bass drum to roll out, roll around and fall right in front of them. And I guess Henson's very particular on what he wants, so they had to stay there till they got the shot. It's hilarious seeing them. They don't show every take. Yeah, but you yeah. see them just like, oh, God. You, know, like, and you can then, find a lot of the takes, though. I yeah. mean, not... You know, not half the takes, but you can find a good amount of takes. Yeah. And it's, it is funny because then they just start, one, they just like, they're goofing off. Because they're getting just, yeah. and then they're just, and after a while they're getting tired because they're standing there holding these puppets <laughs> up over their heads for, you know, however long it takes to do. So then it's like when they're not doing the puppets just flop over because they need to rest their arms. Yeah. And then they're goofing off like pennies. <laughs> yeah, pennies for me, please. Feed us. My feet, are t- my feet are glued to the thing. You know, it's it's just so funny. Uh, and I think that up until, I don't know, well, maybe they did uh, end up breaking it, but that was like the most for, for them, to, you know, takes-wise. Yeah, I think once they got into the motion pictures, that might have changed. They probably exceeded that 
record of n- amount of takes, but up until that point, yeah. But you know, I, you know, we kind of think we kind of hinted at it a little bit, uh, not hinted at it, but I, I don't think we were as I don't think we were as clear that you know this was very much a Emmett Otter was very much kind of a rehearsal to see what they could pull off. Because they wanted to do a feature length, film. yeah, they're they're, they're they between the seasons of the Muppet Show, and they have this time, and they're like, and they want to experiment, yeah. they want to see what kind of innovations they can bring to the process, and they got the twelve, and so we have, you know, Foz Fazakis doing the first time they've done re- like remote puppeteering, which with, you'll see they'll do in the Muppet movie with the boat stuff, and uh, you know, they they have this great puppet maker named uh, Don Celine. He he's the one that builds the Emmett puppet because the Emmett puppet, if you even though he looks very Muppetish, is very different than the other Muppets. It looks a lot like the the original uh, pictures, the illustrations by Lillian Holbin. You know, if you think of Bert and Ernie and Kermit, there's these big open, flat mouths. Yeah, you know, whereas Emmett, uh, the, the otter, these characters have very small mouths and you have to get a hand in there to figure out how to work those things so that's another thing too yeah you're right because a lot of say the muppets are foam yeah. and stuff and some of these are so small where it's just a piece of fabric only hiding the fingers yeah you know and then the, the elaborate setups they're doing where they're you know like you said before with the muppet show you know you kind of has the like the promethean arch and you have this this look in the sets but with here you're seeing like sets that are like 360 degrees. You can see the floors. Yeah. So yeah. like they're doing these, they're doing like these cookie cutter things where they're, you know, they'll to do a reverse. They can take the set apart, but especially the outdoor stuff where it's just like you could see the, the you know, that's where you get to the point sometimes where you, they use the marionette where these yeah. the marion get up on the ice and they're slipping around. It's like it's it's amazing the elaborate well, you know, we sense have, of detail. We have the shots of them rowing the boat. Where you yeah. see like the whole boat in the water, but then there's these other shots. Where if you look at behind the scenes footage, where you see that they're actually, yeah, gets brilliant here. W- yeah, where they they have like it's like a tub, you know. They've somehow sectioned it. I don't know if it's a whole other set or if the set's built that they can break it apart. Yeah. and keep the water there. And there's like a piece of glass holding the water there, holding the water up. And then they have the the boat is in front of the water. Yeah, and they're. Just standing there next to this pool. On of- maybe a, I think they may even be on a dolly so that they can start when they call action. They're moving on the dolly so it looks like they're going down a river because behind them is the water. But they're standing in front of the water. Yeah, because the water's being held there by some plexiglass or For something. For some of the close ups you know? and stuff. And then the whole, like we keep saying, and then gradually through the course of that, I'm going to river. Amazing that this skite, the whole uh, psych is able to just have a sunset on itself yeah, yeah, and come up again. And then it's just beautifully, you know, wherever you look, it's just the sky. It's yeah, that screen kind of, there's parts of it that remind me. We were always talking about that Richard Pryor special. Which was it Richard Pryor? Or is it Bill Cosby? It's Bill Cosby's oh, the, yeah, the, where himself. there's that screen and you're just yeah. sitting there watching. You're like, wait, doesn't that screen used to be red? Yeah, and then it's blue, <laughs> and you're like, it's blue now. Oh, and you never, but you never see a change. <laughs> you never really yeah. notice a change. Yeah, it's Bill Cosby himself. He's there, you know, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it's a different. You're like, what the f- hell is going on there? <laughs> As part of that, the look of that screen did remind me of that a little bit. But it is. I mean, it's look. I mean, it's look. It's slow. By today's standards. Yeah. I mean, it's only, what is it, 45 minutes? I think 50 I think minutes? It's like 50. Yeah. 51, 52, something like that. You know, maybe it drags a little bit by the th- by what we're used to now 
like I said, it's not necessarily something that I grew up with, and it's certainly not something that I think would become a, uh, you know, like a hallmark of me watching this every year. Yeah. But it was kind of fun to, you know, revisit it. Like I said, I haven't seen it since probably 99, 2000, you you know, when I watched it with you. And, um, but even more so, this idea of watching it now, because now that we watch, when we watch things, it's part of trying to view things through the, the glasses of innocence, you know, maybe trying to watch it like I haven't seen Die Hard a million times or whatever yeah. it is. Try not to n- not know the next scene <laughs> or the next line. Yeah. Trying to experience it for the first time again. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also this idea of like, we need to talk about it. So you do have to pay attention or you have to do research and stuff. And uh, I say probably the few things that we've covered about Jim Henson on this show have kind of made me appreciate Jim Henson probably more than ever before. Yeah. Even though when I was like in sixth grade, well, not sixth grade, maybe it was like seventh grade, I did a book report. We had to read biographies and I read a Jim Henson biography. <laughs> but uh, but now that, you know, we, we visit things like the lab, like Labyrinth. The and, Labyrinth. The Labyrinth. And, and That's my and, dad saying it. And the Emmett Otter Christmas. The Emmett Otter. Uh you know, you really do appreciate the, not just him, I mean his team, but also the fact that he would helm this. The genius or yeah, the, 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 the breadth. The, 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 the brilliance that goes into, and, and like you pointed out, the kind of the, uh, the ambition, yeah. you know, to, to really do something special. Or I think mean, that they can even maybe do something like this, yeah, which is insane. Um, Williams... He had a problem with um, drug addiction, so he talks about how uh, Paul Williams. He talks about in the '80s it was a lost decade for him, and then at some point, I mean, uh, during those years, he does Estar, which is that I think Robert Redford movie. Oh yeah. Uh, and then uh, he, at some point, he you know he he uh, is now 28 years sober, so he, he chooses sobriety at some point, and then that's when he starts doing in the early '90s uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, he scored that as well. This thing had always fallen through the cracks here, the the um, Emmett Otter, and so I had a bootleg of this uh, as on the soundtrack, but it was only like you know someone had taken the clips from the show, so you have the dialogue in either end. Yeah, and the hiss of the yeah, television. Yes. So he talks about in the Q and A that like. You know, he used his studio band, which he used on the Phantom of Paradise, whatever was recording his songs, his albums at the time, and the same guys that he did with Bugsy Malone. He used those, his his studio band, to, to record all this stuff. And basically, you know, a lot of this stuff wasn't. It was recorded more with the idea of, I guess, the vocals in mind. So a lot of the original tapes they had were only just, you know, shitty background or whatever. So when the company came to remaster this son of a bitch. They really were able to go in there and pull everything out, and so you can hear the piano and everything, and have it be finalized tunes that the masters that they had, and have this beautiful thing that they actually now, you know, they put it out on a limited edition LP that sold right out, and it's on CD now. And like I said, this is coming in the theater. There is a there is a Broadway show, that's uh, or or not a Broadway show, but a uh, 
uh, what do you call that? Like just a touring, like a, yeah, a, yeah. a, a theatrical show of it. Sure. You know, live action people dressed up like this doing this thing. So, oh, so it's not a puppet show. No, it's not. No, it's not a puppet show. Well, maybe it. Maybe some of it is a puppet show, but there are other people dressed up as you know. From when I, I didn't, I watched, I accidentally clicked on a clip, and I saw <laughs> it. So I'm assuming that's what it was, and I think it was. It, it could be a, a, um, a synthesis of the two, um, but I don't know. Um, and this ended up winning. Geez, well, it was nominated for four, I think, four Emmys. This special, which is pretty uh, astounding. Uh, Outstanding children's program. The executive producer. Outstanding individual achievement, which is costume design. Outstanding individual achievement for children's programming, which is composer lyricist, and for the song uh, "When the River Meets the Sea." And I think it—I oh, don't know if it won all those, but it was, that was the 1981 Enemy Awards. And then a outstanding individual achievement for children's programming for lighting. So uh, it's pretty crazy that that this would go on and go on and you know do all that kind of thing and, and be nominated for what four different Emmys like that and then it almost falls through the cracks and no one sees it for 30 years because of copyright issues like this Muppet Move special Christmas special that I love yeah. that, you know if you don't have an original VHS that was taped off the TV you won't see that in its entirety so I don't know it's crazy it's just crazy uh, and then uh, someone uh, my wife asked the question someone my wife asked a question to him is there anything you turned down uh, in your career, and he said uh, he turned down doing the song for Caddyshack, and then uh, Warren Beatty came to him to do the theme to Heaven Can Wait, and he said, "No, you know, you've already got your theme there." I think he said that, and then Michael Douglas asked him come to do uh, uh, for like, there's a movie where he's a runner, Michael Douglas, where he's like jogging, and Michael Douglas asked him you know to do a song for that, and he's like, "You don't need a song for that. This is fine as it is." And Michael was like, "Oh, okay." Sure. <laughs> and they didn't. Sure, so, Paul. Yeah, sure, Paul. Whatever you say, Paul. So, um, yeah, I, th- this now holds a special place in my heart, uh, and especially when now that I'm hearing with the soundtrack, I'm really getting into the songs of this. And then like that, when the r- river meets the sea is done at his funeral, and Paul Williams says that's like one of the most magical moments he's ever seen. That to do this this ballad at uh, Jim Henson's funeral, it's just. Uh, I can't emphasize enough like his career of these songs and seeing them and then feeling like they're almost interchangeable where he could have this be a Carpenter's tune or he could have this be a John Denver tune you know or this or that and and they're perfectly usable even the stuff you know for the Phantom of Paradise or the Bugsy Malone stuff it's just you know it's all good stuff I think probably the the thing that's probably the I don't want to say worst Brothers, but the thing that is probably the most, uh, the thing that's I don't, I don't know how to word it. But the, thing that, the thing that's not great about his songs is that because they're written for mo- for movies, they're often unfortunately sung by people who don't have good singing voice. <laughs> yeah, you get people who are singing. <laughs> yeah, like I wish the Muppets could sing better. Yeah. I don't. E- I actually don't even think, you know. God bless her. I don't even think like the mother's voice is that great. Uh, um, Ma yeah. Otter, Marilyn Sokol. But uh, I mean, it's fine. I yeah. mean, it fits well for this. But unfortunately, a lot of these songs that he that he does for the movies are not sung by professional singers. They're sung by either Frank Oz <laughs> or, or, or Scott Baio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, yeah. which it's fine because it's the context of the movie. But it's like you do wish that 
more of these songs yeah were, were, you know. like you got to hear them with like that band those backing tracks yeah. but with like really I great mean some of the singers. stuff on on the um Bugsy Malone it's like it's secretly you could tell it's Paul Williams if you listen to it but yeah. he's just putting on like a kid's voice like you know which is funny you know it just sounds like all of a sudden like it's him like you know putting on this little accent or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I was really little, I thought he was even English because sometimes how he has his phrasing, it sounds like almost like, you know, on the radio. You know, it's yeah, like I yeah. thought he was, you know, but it was just the style of how he was doing these songs. And it's just, again, mind-blowing to me that this guy, he's just shitting out. You know, he did a, he did a song for Thunderbolt Lightfoot. Uh, all these different, uh, I didn't realize until recently, the, what is that, the Barbara Streisand Star is Born version with Chris Christopherson, he did that. Mm-hmm. You know, and he talks, again, about that. Uh, I guess to, to wrap this up, he talks about the differences working like with Jim Henson. Jim Henson was just he. There was a trust there, where like you know Henson, because in Emmett Otter, the, the songs were already there was song names and stuff. He had to kind of run by Henson. This is what I'm thinking for this or that. When they get to the Muppet movie, he says, you know, he's like, do you want to hear the songs? And Henson's like, no, I'll, I'll just hear them when you record them in the studio. So there's this level of trust where he's sure. saying, where he's doing the Star is Born, where he's getting a call every two hours. How's it going? What's going on? We don't like it. We're going to hear what you got, you know? So it's, it's, it's also when you're working with like a, a, a company or, or a, 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 th- a troupe where, you know, you, you know, that's why you end up working with people again and again and again, because you can trust them. You know, their their talent, you know what they're capable of and you know, they can cult, pull through and do it. Yeah. So that's been, and I'm really happy. There's a great documentary that came out. And five or so years ago, which I wasn't able to rewatch for this, but uh, about Paul Williams, I think it's called like Paul Williams is not dead, or <laughs> Paul Williams, I am still alive, Paul Williams, something like that. Um, and uh, I'm glad he's starting to get a second kind of a life, especially with the uh, Daft Punk Random Access Memories doing uh, touch on that, and he does another song on there, you know. And now he's like I said, he's acting again, and he's doing this stuff that it's he was nice. just in something. I can't remember what it was, unfortunately. Recently, like recent, yeah, recent? and it wasn't that Goliath series. No, it was a movie, and it was like some weapons exchange. You know, like somebody was buying illegal weapons, and he was the guy selling. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a part for him, like with the glasses, and you know. I can't remember what it was. I mean, we we covered. Yeah, I, remember, I was like, holy shit, is that, is that <laughs> Well, that's when I was little. All of a sudden, when I'm watching the Smoking the Bandits, he's little Enos, and I'm trying to because then he's also he has a cameo in. The Muppet movie, he's he's the piano player in the uh, El Slizo. Showtime, showtime at the El Slizo. So I'm like, is that Little Enos? And then you realize, oh, Little Enos is a songwriter. Oh, you know, so it's weird when you put these these things together because, you know, he's not the best looking guy in the world. Like from, I'm saying from like a, you know, a leading man, sure. you know, he has a look to him. So, you know, he, he has a strength. I mean, he plays the devil in Phantom of Paradise. He's, he ends up being a really good actor in these things, and the, you know, and it's and he's hilarious in the Smoking the Bandit series. Uh, but it's just funny when you see when you start realizing, oh, like, oh, that's is that like, he shows up in the doors. There's a scene where uh, the Val Kilmer Oliver Stone Doors movie where they're at an Andy Warhol party, and Crispin Glover is Andy Warhol, but Paul Williams is the guy bringing him. He's like, sometimes I don't know if Andy is. I forget what he says. Like, if Andy's talking to God or God is talking to him, or if Art. Oh, it is. He says if. Uh, art is imitating life or, or life is imitating Andy oh and then he brings him to Andy he's like I, want, I have a phone and I want to talk to God but you know I don't know what to say <laughs> yeah I want you to have this you know it's like it's, it's funny so uh, yeah this is a little Christmas thingy for, for all the people out there for a little Christmas season action 
uh, wrapping up the 2018 uh, season with a bang. We did Die Hard last week, like we said. Yeah. I mean, if you got time before the holidays, feel free to go back and check out some of our other great holiday specials. We did Santa Claus the movie. We did the Star Wars holiday special. We got special. a lot of B-sides. You know, uh, Black Christmas, uh, uh one of my favorites and one of the least downloaded, sadly, along with Black Christmas, is uh, Ernest Saves Christmas. That mm-hmm. was the first. They were both the first. First, Christmas, first right? year we did Gremlins one year. Uh, we've done Santa Claus the movie, which I still think is a forgotten classic now with uh, Dudley Moore and. Um, we did Invasion USA. We did it. <laughs> that is, if, if we want to talk about a forgotten classic starring Chuck Norris. Uh, oh, it might have been. We might have done it. I don't know. What did we do with the same year that we did Invasion USA? I think we did Gremlins. Was that the Gremlins year? Yeah, because then we did last year, we did Lethal Weapon, and then we ended up doing another Paul Williams, The Night yeah. They Saved Christmas. Yeah, a television movie. Yeah, right? which you had never seen. With... I had never seen, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, was I remember that. It. Last year, you <laughs> were really <laughs> I thought you, you were very nervous about yeah. <laughs> what I was going to think of it. Because he, yeah, it's uh, Paul t- Williams. I'm a tough, I'm a tough critic. So. And that's a, gr- that's a great cast. And, I, and that was uh, Art Carney as Santa. Paul Williams is the head elf. Jacqueline Smith, and then the other guy where we just brought up the Nuprin guy. Yeah, yeah. You brought two people in a bottle, and then we were making jokes about sorcerer. Remember, like we don't want the same thing that happened down <laughs> with the oil. It's the sequel. It's the unknown sequel to William Freaking Sorcerer. You don't want to have what happened down in Brazil or whatever it was. Uh, you know uh, what's the name of that? The, the Somebody plays Managua. the dad too. Yeah, the dad is someone famous as well. Uh, but we did that, and that was a surprise hit, which was clear out of left field. I was like, hey, there's a movie I saw 35 years ago <laughs> that I think might be a good fit that I have, we have to find a German bootleg to watch. Um, what else have we done? We did Lethal Weapon last year. Then I think we're skipping a year. We uh, must be. Yeah, because there's some other things we've done. Well, anyway. We've never gone right, way down in the alley. I think the earliest Christmas fair we've done is Black Christmas from 74. We haven't done like it's a wonderful life or any of that kind of stuff now. We have plenty of time. Yeah, we got we got all the time in the world, <laughs> baby. <laughs> but yeah, check out our Christmas fair. That's that's my favorite time of the year. Blake likes the Halloween time. My mine's the Christmas time. We also did last year and around used to this time as a Star bonus Wars episode. I think we also did Star Wars. We but did the re- the regular Star Wars, as like, as like which a was the, bonus the biggest bonus episode we've ever done. Because and that we didn't was the even year. finish it. <laughs> no, it was four hours. <laughs> we were tempted to do a follow up. Yeah, it was so didn't... much that the tape recorder turned off. It was like this. was like it just like fuck it. It just you know, uh, and that was a that was accidental to coincide with the with the last Jedi release. Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't even Christmas related, and we had covered two years prior the Christmas holiday special, which we still stand by as the freaking best. Uh, discussion you're ever going to hear on that Star Wars holiday special. Yeah, the m- snick. What is it? Snickery free or snark free? Snickery, snickery, and probably the longest. It's over two hours of us talking about that. Another <laughs> Art Carney, and the completely heartfelt. Yeah, and we don't really make fun of it. I mean, no. we point out some of the craziness Silliness. of it. Yeah, it was, but... you know, Art Carney being the f- forerunner to Lando Calrissian. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the grandpa, the grandpa masturbating. <laughs> that Beautiful. was a yeah. god damn. That was plot a, point. That you was know? a great yeah. episode. Uh, B. Arthur doing that awesome like Jewish folk song, like you don't have to leave, but you can't stay here. <laughs> Whatever that was. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So we that was that was that's, a big highlight. Uh, that Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers at, at, at its best. Right yeah, it's there. prime right there. That's that's prime cut material. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. We hope you have a great holiday season. Uh, we'll be. Kicking in the door of 2000, what is that, 19? 
Uh, with some with some other amazing stuff we have on uh, in the hopper. Uh, it's on the prep station. Going to be thrown in the water soon. Start cooking it up. Uh, you can find Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. All those social medias. You can uh, message us, uh, like our stuff, retweet us. Uh, you know, comment questions, whatever you want. We yeah, can find us there. Yeah, we're on iTunes and Stitcher and. Uh, CLNS Media. CLNS Media. Yeah, we're over there with the boys there. You can find us on CLNS Media, doing the good stuff over there. Doing the Lord's work. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're there d- doing it. You know, great times with them. We, you know, uh, we love the, uh, the 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 formation we have there. Um, Blake, your what's what's going on in your world? Scored to death. Conversations with some of horror's greatest composers is the book. The sequel, which. We don't have the exact title yet. We'll be coming out in 2020. That's awesome. So stay tuned for that. You know, and you think that's far out, but that's right around the corner. Uh, you know, for me trying to get it done in time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Less time than you think. Blake's tires are already going in the sand. <laughs> and then, of course, I've been doing this year uh, finishing up the season of uh, St- Score to Death the podcast. Uh, some great episodes recently with fantastic interviews that were fantastic because of the people I was interviewing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Barry Dvorzon, great stories about working with James Brown and and uh, on the and then working on the Warriors and then, of course, f- closing out the season with uh, John Massari who did Killer Clowns from Outer Space and just talks about working with uh, Ray Bradbury because they did the theme to the Ray Bradbury Remember Theater. The 80s show. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm Ray Bradbury That's and I write up, stories. And I just started doing... Uh, Right around this time, the first episode of I'm now taking over as host for Cuts from the Crypt on the Damn Fine Network. So uh, I'm sure you'll see that on social media as they come out. But I'm now playing DJ and spinning some classics from some horror movies. When's that start? That's going to start. Uh, it's going to be the last Saturday of every month, starting with the last Saturday of December this month. So, oh, so th- you'll have your your inaugural episode yeah. will drop the end of this month. Yeah, well, that's pretty exciting. And then I'll be doing that for as long as I can keep it up, I guess. <laughs> as long as I'm employed, <laughs> <laughs> as long as they'll have me. So, if you like horror movie music, you're going to get to hear a lot of it on that show. That's exciting. And then, of course, Dion Baya, author extraordinaire. Oh yeah, making the press rounds. Yeah, that, that's why my voice is hoarse and uh, I, I've been a nervous wreck and I didn't do as much research as I would have liked to have done on this, but what else can you do in this? The but, book is called Blood in the Street. <laughs> yeah, let's get this done. Let's <laughs> close this out. It's called Blood Written, in the Street. Written by the great Dion Baya. Yeah, it makes a fantastic stocking, stocking stuffer. Yes, it's available uh, on Amazon, on paperback, on uh, ebook, on audiobook. Uh, I would like to give a shout out to the guy who read the audiobook, Peter Burkrot. He's an actor. He was in Caddyshack. And, you know, I was listening to the eight hour and 10 minute <laughs> unabridged version of the book. And, you know, that is true acting, I think, right there, because this guy's doing just a one man play. Just him and a microphone. Him and a microphone doing various voices, all this kind of directions and choice. And that's really, you know, that is, you want to hear a thespian doing their craft, you know. And I only say that because I'm not, I'm a reader. I don't listen to. I listen to old radio shows from 80 years ago. So it's amazing to hear nowadays. I guess that's why people find like Audible and so appealing. Who did it? Burt Bacharach? Yeah, Burt Bacharach. (laughs) uh, Peter Burkrot. 
Um, and then so find you know you can get that on Amazon, Blue in the Streets, Gritty. You like grit, gritty seventies cop Audible. films. Audible.com. Yep, Audible.com, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, all anywhere you want to look. Target's got it too. Uh, check it out. Uh, it's available now. Please get it. And if you have got it, uh, this makes a lot of sense that Blake was saying a couple years ago. I'm learning this now. If you if you if you get it, please rate and review it on Amazon because that evidently helps. It does. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't know. Verify not, a pe- not a lot of people like to do that. At yeah. least for my book. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Full d- disclosure: I didn't. I didn't even do it. Blake <laughs> asked me to do it for his, and I said sure, and it got away from me. And then my wife said, "Did you do one for Blake?" I was like, "I did not do one for Blake." And she's like, "Well, you're a fucking asshole." And I said, "I am. I am, honey." There's I a am. lot of those around. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, so yes, so there's that going around too. So please check that out. And uh, before you know it, we'll be back into the uh, January season. You know, probably opening the this, the thing up with a with a huge. We'll try. Yeah, with a huge thing. We're we're worried. You know, to keep the expectation up, people we'll are just going to get see. sick of it. We'll have to see. Yeah. So um, hope you have a good holiday. Stay Happy safe. Holiday. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> Some <laughs> ringing. Happy holidays. You know, I'm gonna t- one last note. Um, it's interesting in these holiday songs you hear like the little devilish lyrics like they're saying the most beautiful time of the year they'll be what do they say married and then we'll be singing uh, telling ghost stories and uh, thinking of long it, well, who at the hell at Christmas time is telling ghost stories Dickens man yeah I, exactly <laughs> a Christmas only carol the mo- only the most famous <laughs> yeah. Christmas story of all time but you don't hear that as a normal <laughs> like people aren't doing that there's one and uh, you know it's like oh, you know it's it, you hear this in these songs or uh uh, there's another one. Da 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 for a better way. Da da for save us from Satan's power. It's like Satan. You're throwing Satan in here. <laughs> so whoa. A, yeah, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Like a left turn. Yeah. Hey, this suddenly this got serious, baby. You know. So that's why when you hear Andy Williams throwing his arms up, there'll be scary ghost stories about along. Like, wait, wait, wait. Who the hell's telling ghost stories around campfires at Christmas time? Charles Dickens, baby. <laughs> Dickens, baby. Dickens, baby. <laughs> Who loves you, baby? Right, it's late. It's, it's late. late, baby. We'll do this forever. If yeah. We never before <laughs> and never again. That's my favorite Jim Morrison, dude. Light my fire. Light my fire. All right. <laughs> Merry Christmas. This is what we do at actual sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why hey, we were <laughs> we were talking about a movie with this is what we would be doing. Yeah, and that's why my dad opens the door and says, when is this going to end? When is it going to end? Because yeah. he, he hears this for four or six hours. That's enough of the impression. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, when's it going to end? Tony Bennett's not singing Jim Morrison songs, D. <laughs> no one gets that song. Yeah, we're a little whacked out now. This is. It, I'm going to be surprised if this stays in, but it well, probably will. But anyway, have a good holiday, Merry Christmas, and all those other good things. See you next year. Later. Later.